<laughs> it always does that. <laughs> oh Christ! And just, just like that, just like that, I'm monumentally depressed. <laughs> so, welcome everybody to Radio More Pork, and I never remember the second half of that. So, Colin, take it away. It is, it is, friends. Radio More Pork, the podcast where we discuss Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. Rating, ranking, rambling, reviewing, analyzing, uh, and so on and so on. I am Colm and I'm joined as ever by my lovely co-host. Steve. That's yeah. the fella. And today we are talking about Unseen Academicals, the football book of which uh, that fact in itself is something Steve is rather less happy about than me. But uh, we'll, we'll see if he survives <laughs> the next hour and a half or so. Yeah, just to, as a little precursor to this particular podcast, so I'm sure as many of the people who read Terry Pratchett's books, I'm not particularly into football in any sense whatsoever, never had any interest in it, uh, so this was kind of a difficult one for me to get into, but um, as you said, I, I gave it my best, gave it my all, and there's certainly some things to enjoy about the book, so that's good, but um, yeah, as you say, this is the football one, a very out of left field turn for Terry Pratchett to make considering like his previous works. Yeah. Um, I think you said, you said in a previous one that he, uh, at one point before he wrote the book, it was one subject he never considered. He don't, he didn't think he could ever write a book about. Yeah. I, I think this might be mentioned in a, in Mark Burroughs book, but I've certainly heard it elsewhere where, uh, um, as we, we discussed at length with, with Mark about how like the initial American versions of Discworld kept them horrible covers and in some case really misleading blurbs and infamously the uh, American, the first American version of Lords and Ladies lists the, the subplot about the Lunker Morris men, Jason Og and the rest of them. It lists them as a football team presumably because they're like <laughs> like like Morris dancing was just one step too far in the cultural divide between the UK and the US. They thought people wouldn't get it but uh, it, it's baffling because obviously like they don't change anything within the book. Like, you know, you, <laughs> if you're a, a football or a, a soccer fan, as they call it over there in the US, and you're like, oh, cool. <laughs> you open, open, hang on. Um, but, but yeah, Pratchett was asked about this, and he joked and said, oh, that's like one subject I'd never write about. Um, he wasn't very interested in football or, or any sport at all that I know of, but obviously it's, it's kind of very much percolated in, around certainly around British culture and around world culture in general. So I think anyone has kind of aspects of that they pick up on. And I think, like, for me, uh, but we'll obviously get into the, breaking out the plot and get into the me of actually analysing the book, but um, for me as a football fan reading it, that wouldn't necessarily put me off because, I mean, Pratchett's done great work with subjects that he presumably doesn't have a, a huge amount of background mm. um a uh, background of, of being interested in or enthusiastic about for like opera or um mm, mm. you know whatever banking even in, in, in making money which is a kind of hit and miss book but he still has a lot of interesting things to say about that so the, the idea of kind of him tackling a subject that i really like but he isn't as interested in wouldn't necessarily make me think oh no this Outsiders going to get his nerd cooties all over my precious sport, you know. I'd actually be quite interested to see what his perspective is. But we'll get all, to all that in length, I suppose. So first, we should just recount the plot. How does this one go, Steve? So, as I recall, um, setting the scene, I think 
uh, Terry Pratchett dives in and he shows how there's kind of street football or mob football taking place on the streets of Ankh-Morpork, Park, which is much more violent than your uh, standard game of football. Um, people use hands. There's the occasional murder. Um, it's a very rough and violent game. And this kind of just sets up the scene and shows how there are different factions within the city which uh, represent, you know, typical supporters of the teams. Um, uh, some examples in the book are the Dolly Sisters and uh, Dimwell, uh, which become relevant later. But we kind of flash up to Unseen University, uh, where the Wizards have just learned that they are contractually obliged to play, engage in one game of football every 20 years in order to continue to receive a large lump sum of money from a wealthy family. This is like one condition um, in order for them to uh, keep doing this. And if they don't play football this year with one team, they will have to reduce their their intake of food down to a meager three meals a day, <laughs> as I recall. So um, they plan to set up a team. And the first thing, one of the first things they need to do is... Uh, State, uh, state their business to veterinary so Ridicly goes to veterinary to explain this and it's kind of common knowledge at this point in the book that veterinary doesn't like football he's not a fan, something I relate to and um, so when he arrives Ridicly is quite uh, surprised to find that veterinary wants to uh, how would you say it, like uh, re- revolutionise the sport of football to kind of make it a standard practice um make it more a more gentle gentlemanly sport i suppose with this is quite surprising for ridicule but he veterinary basically puts him in charge of this task of making football kind of like the national sport the national pastime within angmorepork but while this is happening there are some other things going on in the lower levels of unseen university how would you like to tell us about that column so uh, downstairs in uh, with the, with the, the servants who work in Unseen University, we've got a, a mysterious new addition called Mister Nut, who's a humble but very verbose and erudite little fellow, uh, who's a candle dribbler. Uh, he works with uh, with a bunch of people there, most notably Trevor Likely or or Mister Trev as he calls him. And uh, there, Mister Nut seems to have quite mysterious origins. Like he's clearly much more. Um, erudite and obviously intelligent than than the other people who work in the, in the vats it it transpires ponder stibbins I, i'm not quite sure at what point in the book but gets um suspicious of this and asks for cully who infers that like it, the the university has sort of employed him to protect him because everyone wants to kill him but we don't really get any more information at that stage about why we're told he's a goblin which is a relatively new species as far as like uh, our experience of to this world goes it isn't one I, I don't think we've had depicted before i think they might have been mentioned in making money or, or some of the more recent ones they mention may have passing mentions of uh, goblins but we haven't really seen them but we're led to believe in any case that they're a, a kind of a i suppose quite a, a look down upon but ultimately species but ultimately one that's perceived as relatively harmless so so not being a goblin isn't something that explains why he's uh so feared and hated and, and why the university has had to take care of him so he, he's beginning to make friends with, with mr trev mr trev is sweet on juliet who's one of the girls who works in the night kitchen uh juliet is in turn friends with glenda who's a, a kind of renowned cook in the night kitchen um it sort of has a big sisterly attitude to juliet like kind of you know running a lot of her life for her own good um she disapproves of of trev 
they 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 kind of their plots come together as Glenda and Juliet go to a football match. So do uh, Trev and Nutty brings Nut along to to see his first match. Nut causes a huge sensation by picking the the ball up when it comes to him and just throwing it towards the the end. As you said earlier, these early games of football are played the lengths of whole streets. So um, I, I was I was sort of confused by. Well, I'll, get, I'll get into this in a bit when we talk about like the uh, the parallels of this in real life. But a lot of really early like folk games of football, it would be like you bring the ball from one end of a street or a town to another. So that's where the idea of like where and now in football you've got the goals. You have the, like a frame of a goal that the ball has to go in. Whereas there it would have been just kind of the boundaries of a town in. In this bit, we're kind of led to believe it's almost like basketball. Like, it's just one stick you have to hit. Uh, like, he hits it, and, and this causes a sensation. But my initial thought was like, oh, has he not just hit the post? You know, like, like should he not be getting it through that? And, another, like, is there another stick there? To my, I, anyway, that isn't too important because of... Um, that's the, the really the only depiction of that style of football we get. But it was just... It, given that it, it's quite an important bit in that part of the book, like, that, like, Nutt has done something that... You know, nobody has as uh, usually does. Well, another thing in this early kind of form of football in Ankh-Morpork, Park, we were led to believe that um, you know goals are very much at a premium. Like Trev Likely's dad is this—he's deceased when the book begins, but he's this a uh, famous footballer, Dave Likely, who scored four goals <laughs> in his whole career, four goals, and this is this is kind of elevated into you know godlike status. Uh, so obviously, what Nut does cause quite a sensation. There's a bit of a uh, not quite a riot, but kind of like almost a, a disaster in the shove. Again, it's it's reminiscent of um, like a, a lot of uh, well, a lot of football crowds right up until the the latter half of the, the 20th century, really. But everyone's kind of standing and moving around in this disorganized mass, and the risk of of crushing being a, a very real one. Then on the way back from the match, um, uh, first of all. Trev catches Juliet as she falls and this causes a kind of sensation because they're supporting rival teams a la kind of footballing Romeo and Juliet um, he obviously he's sweet on her but he's worried that if people find this out it'll be trouble for the both of them they're on the way home from the match Trev, Nutt and Trev's friends who, well they're his friends, he hangs around with them he doesn't seem to like them very much, particularly Andy who's kind of like, like, a, like a hooligan but uh there's a running thing about like it's better to be you know behind Andy than in front of him, so people kind of be his friends, so they're not the ones he's he's hitting. They run into Juliet's brothers, who are obviously big figures in the kind of like uh, hooligan heavies ultras of of the other team, and they begin to have have a fight. Nut ends up seemingly killed in this fight, and this this sort of causes a uh, uh, Trev to react very strongly. He kind of shouts down his friends and. You know, has a an epiphany of how stupid and and uh, pointless all of this kind of like uh, you know macho tribal violence is. He takes Nut to the hospital. He's questioned by the watch, uh, notably by by Anua, who are is quite suspicious of his, his involvement in the whole thing. Uh, and then Nut mysteriously recovers from uh, from apparent death. Uh, while this is going on, too, we're getting stuff in the, the background of the university that as they're starting up the the football team. Uh, we we hear that they have a competition of sorts in Brazenek University in Sudopolis, the arch chancellor of which is the former dean, um, oh, who's first name we discover is Henry, uh, in this which it goes I think way back to, oh, it's one of the earlier um, unseen university ones where Reed Coley says something like I, I think it's I think it's the last continent where where they're trying to find out the librarian's name. 
And he says, I hope we'll know our colleagues' names, Dean. <laughs> and, and it's that like he doesn't know his but uh, but at this point he's like scraping the back of his memory to find out what it is because he can't call him Dean and he certainly doesn't want to call him Arch Chancellor when they meet up <laughs> um, so, so there's a kind of competitive element uh, there to it that Dean uh, or, or Henry visits um, on Senior University and it's implied they've tried to recruit Ponder but, but he's rejected them they've ended up with Adrian Turnipseed aka Big Mad Drongo as the kind of ah, poor yeah. man's Ponder in a Brazenek University. So anyway, all this is going on, but Nuff recovers from his uh, apparent death, and, and then what happens? So another thing that we should bring up at this point, just before we go any further on that, there's also Juliet drags Glenda to what is basically a dwarf fashion show Oh yes. Uh, at this point. Um, and while there, uh, the... Was, was, it, was it just Madam was the name of the... Oh, Madam Sharon. Ah, yeah. So she uh, spies Juliet and basically thinks uh, she's an ideal model for a micro male, which is a new thing that the dwarfs are developing, which apparently is much lighter uh, than typical chain mail, but still just as hard. I think it's supposed to be just mithril, maybe, like from Tolkien, but they just changed the yeah, name on yeah, it, basically. That's kind of, like, it actually took a while for the penny to drop there, but um, that, that's yeah, what I, I think it's supposed to be like. And there's a running joke of, and it doesn't chafe. Which I think is just yeah. kind of like uh, I don't know, playing off the fact of like, like a sort of un unspoken practical convenience of Mitchell and Pocket that it would yeah. be a, a lot more comfortable to wear under your shirt on a than chainmail or anything like that. Yeah. but um, so while they're there uh, they basically wrangle uh, Juliet into doing uh, this job. Glenda, who's always kind of her carer of sorts, um, she, she she kind of fills the role of, in Romeo of Juliet of Juliet. Is it her like one of her maid or a nurse or something like that? Like it's been a long time since I've read it, but I think I think it's her nurse. But um, she kind of plays uh, that role, and uh, so she kind of controls a lot of aspects of Juliet's life because Juliet is just so trusting of her and, and it allegedly doesn't lead her, lead her astray. But she's kind of against the idea of Juliet like doing this because she thinks she's got a steady job in the kitchen. But she drinks she's drinking a lot of free sherry at this event, so that kind of makes her head a little bit fuzzy. So in the end, what happens? Juliet takes the the modeling gig and she says, "Okay, I'll do it." So she goes down the catwalk, but she's disguised. She has a fake beard to, to disguise her true face, but also mainly because it's a dwarf fashion show. So of course they have to have a beard. While she's doing uh, her catwalking thing, Glenda meets Pepe, who is basically Madame's assistant, uh, a very flamboyant fellow, but also. He grew up in uh, one of the rougher parts of Ankh-Morpork. Uh, so even though he's a very flamboyant fellow who's very into fashion and that sort of thing, he knows what it's like to be on the streets, um, which he's, comes he's up again later. He's also sort of like Carrot in that he's, uh, he's biologically human, but kind of culturally dwarvish. Uh, like, yeah. Unlike Carrot, who was raised in a mine, he's just kind of hung around with them for so long. And I think he says something about having done certain ceremonies. So I suppose it'll be like... The, the equivalent of like converting to a, a new religion later in life or, yeah. or getting citizenship of a new country having lived there for a long time mm. yeah so um, after the fashion show uh, Juliet becomes basically a phenomenon of sorts and uh, everybody wants to meet her she's like her picture is in uh, the, the times the Young World War Times but like nobody knows who she actually is and like they're just dying to find out while this is happening uh, veterinary calls a meeting with uh, all the wizards and all of the 
well, a select number of team captains within Ankh-Morpork. So they meet at Unseen University. And very cunningly, he gets the vast majority of them very, very drunk and then tricks them into... Well, trick is a strong word, but what are you going to do? He tricks them into signing on to this newfangled idea of football, which is very similar to the typical conception that we have of a a typical game of football. Of course, the Wizards are still kind of manufacturing the rules and trying to formulate how the game is played. So it isn't like fully formed yet, but they're still committed to it after uh, Veterinary gets them all drunk and shows that he's one of the lads, basically. At this point, Ridicully agrees to play a match against... Originally, I, th- I thought in my head, I got confused here. I thought he was going to play against the Dean. And yeah, yeah, the, I think it is the former Dean. at one point that, that they'll yeah. do that, which, which is, is something worthy of discussion, I think. But what it ends up at the end, it's the Unseen University team against, I, I think a team that just becomes known as like Ankh Morpork United, but it's essentially a kind mm. of odds and sods collection of people who are on the, the previously existing neighborhood teams that played that kind of like rough folk football we saw at the start. Uh, what, so while they're putting, uh, so while Ankh, uh, while the unseen academicals, as they are soon to be known, are putting their team together, it soon becomes very apparent that Nut knows a lot. Mister Nut knows an awful lot about the game of football, how it should be played, and he just seems to really have his head in the game, so to speak. So ridiculously, uh, ridiculously, initially appoints Ponder Stibbins take care of like the putting together the team, the training, and Ponder Stibbins delegates to Mister Nut when he sees that he. Uh, has so much knowledge about and Mr. Nut puts them through all kinds of like training very uh, unconventional uh, football training he brings them to the ballet uh, at one point and uh, there's some, some something else he does that's quite unusual I can't remember is it like like he has them I think he has them training without the ball at some point yeah, or he has them like blindfolded or something as well and, yeah. yeah all sorts of kind of alternative progressive methods he's using uh, but this is really te- this seems to be taken off like they're um, it's going well they have a you know a kind of a team they've got like Dr. Hicks the, the necromancer they've got Rincewind they have, make an aborted attempt to try and get the luggage playing because they think it'll be great because it has so many legs but it, it turns out it just uh, confuses itself I'd imagine under any kind of enforcement of the rules as well the luggage would spend all of five minutes before being sent off given its its natural disposition towards like rabid aggression they have the librarian in goals they have a, a fellow who's on a uh, he's transferred from Genua called uh, Bengo Macarana who's like, <laughs> very very clearly like a Diego Maradona um, reference and he's kind of there firing away the, the best player they've got they, they continually try to convince uh, Trev likely to, to join uh, at first it seems he'll like only sign up to kind of be a I suppose like the equivalent of like like a, like a ball boy or an assistant coach. He's just there, kind of you know, running around helping people on on the sidelines. Uh, but but he's insisting he won't play because of a promise he made to his old mum because of um, mm. what football done to his dad in terms of like his dad just you know dying unloved in the gutter despite being this this kind of folk football hero uh, for for a while. So this is all going well enough, but then it emerges that Mister Nutt is an orc. Mm. And we learn more about what orcs are. We kind of learn this backstory that I feel like might have been alluded to in one of the earlier ones. A kind of like quasi-Tolkienian 
backstory in Uberwald of a dark lord and a, a war against him. I, I, I feel like there's a throwaway line it's somewhere about like like evil empires and things like that, but it's certainly something that's being developed here. We we kind of have this uh you know, this idea that, that there was like a yeah, like like a Tolkienian, a Lord of the Rings style good versus evil, you know, very uh, quintessentially dark with a capital D, Dark Lord using an army of orcs mm. to to battle free peoples who they defeated, and this has left orcs with them. So there's a huge amount of stigma. They're just seen as kind of mindless killing machines. They've almost been hunted to to extinction, um, or I suppose genocide might be the better term, given that they're a mm. um, salient race. So Nut is kind of an experiment on behalf of uh, on the part of Lady Margolotta who we've, of course, met in, in The Fifth Elephant, to see whether she can teach an orc to be civilized. He seems to be, uh, like, an outstanding success in that regard in being quite a, like, a mild, very intelligent fellow. He, he has a lot of self-esteem issues stemming from it, like this idea of constantly wanting to uh, prove his own worth and sort of being afraid of his, his capacity to, to do evil. He goes a bit catatonic i suppose for uh, having uh, come to terms with his uh, his origins and goes missing glenda juliet and trev go uh, i think they they catch a bus and are going they plan to head to uberwald because that's where they assume he's going to, i think they meet him well before uberwald and convince him and the rest of the people on the bus who just seem to kind of take his uh, the revelations of his um or nature, they seem to take it quite well. Uh, this convinces them to come back. However, when, when he's come back to the city, the, the war has gotten round. Um, there's a lot of, for want of a better term, like, you know, the racial stories and kind of uh, hate speech and fear mongering against this idea of the orc is going to tear people's heads off and so on. This comes to a head, too, during uh, the, the match they're going to do with uh, Unseen University and, and Ankh Morpork United. We then start to get word of, like, Andy Shank is sort of enlisting help from a lot of the old heavies and ultras and people who are big figures in the kind of earlier form of football to sabotage the match in some way in order to, mm. to make sure that this kind of football doesn't catch on. He's he's playing for the opposition team, but a lot of the people he's kind of like enlisted as help are, are people in the in the stands. Kind of, well, they're called like faces with a capital F and they're sort of like, you know, mm. like big figures in, uh, yeah, in like hooligan or ultras groups. And um, then, then we, I suppose, we're, we're, we're at the match itself at that point, right? The, the Dean Henry is the, the referee. Uh, he mm. creates an, an anti-magic field around the pitch, which Trev is worried about since he thinks this will allow Andy to sort of have his way without the Wizards being able to stop him. And, and what happens in the match? Well, just before we go into that, I just want to make one extra note. So uh, earlier on, Trev, much earlier on in the book, uh, Trev enlists the help of Mr. Nutt to write a love letter to oh, Juliet. Yes. And um, because uh, Trev isn't very good at words, uh, he uh, he asks for Nut's help, and Nut basically delivers the letter to Juliet via Glenda. And because Juliet can't read the the word that or the le- the letter that Nut has written, because it's got a lot of very flowery language and it just goes completely over her head, she asks Glenda to read it. So Glenda does, and she recognizes a lot of the words because she she. Even though she seems like quite a sensible person, she also has a guilty pleasure of reading cheap uh, romantic novels. Uh, and even though she doesn't understand a lot of the words, she's familiar with a lot of the language. So when she they catch up with Nut, um, it's kind of revealed that Nut, although he wrote the letter for Trev to Juliet, his ulterior motive was to write the letter 
for uh, Glenda. And it becomes clear that there is something of a relationship blossoming here. So it's not 100% clear what it is at the start, but there is some kind of relationship happening. So, yes, at this point, we are now at the match. And for a while, it seems like uh, the Unseen Academicals are doing a good job. They're, uh, you know, playing well, but then the sabotages start coming in. Some of the, (laughs) we see like the first, uh, I think the first example of, uh, what was it, like, tackling like uh, with malicious intent or something and uh oh well if you didn't see it if you can't prove that he meant to do it then like you know it's not against the rules like you could just say it's an accident but yeah something that i'm sure is very common in, in football um another member of the uh ang Morpork united is that what, what it was yeah 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 i think it's one of the uh, top supporters like as a kindly old lady she gives a poison banana to the librarian which basically knocks him out cold and I think at that point, uh, the librarian is replaced by Nut. I'm trying to remember what happens after that point. Um, so, well, early on, uh, Unseen University got 2-0 up with uh, Bingo Macarana scoring both goals. But they're doing it in such a way that I suppose exploits their knowledge and more familiarity with the, the new kind of rules. So Rid Cully sort of sportingly, <laughs> and the thing that like never happens in real football, but it's kind of very common if you're, uh, you know, when you're you're playing on the field with your friends of like, we'll give you one of our goals because this isn't fair. Uh, so it goes from two 0 to one all at a stroke. But I don't know how you'd record that that score. It's like you know, it's an own goal from Macarona. But uh, in any case, so then, but then at one all and. Um, Andy and his mates kind of hack down Macarana. He goes off injured, so suddenly they're they're in trouble. Um, eventually, bring on Trevor Likely, who, who was convinced to come on. And while like his the, the pressure gets like like his movement is very good, he continually comes into possession, the ball in dangerous areas. But like like just kind of a counter hit a cow's arse with a banjo. Like he's you know he's hitting the post, he's hitting it over. Glenda, based on the kind of oh uh, sorry, I think we neglected to mention too is while this is very much veterinary reforming or modernizing the game of football, it's kind of presented as a return to roots because early on this article appears in the Ankh-Morpork Times of like a like an ancient vase that was discovered with um you know of like like how ancient Ankh-Morpork civilizations played this game and, and a list of rules and so on. So it, it's sort of it, it's quite a clever. I think thing too that that uh, not only in football but probably in politics in general and in society a lot of reform it can often come in the the form of you know like wearing the clothes of tradition as it were like like being suggested as if like oh this is actually a return to some you know something we've lost rather than something wholly new but in any case so so they have these kind of like arcane rules from it and one is about like the ball must be the ball so glenda is able to kind of like hide the the ball they're using and they substitute a a tin can which trev has been kind of like has an almost uh like magnetic ability with where he's, he's for the rest of the book while he won't play football he's playing keep you up he's with this tin can and just has like perfect control over it uh so that goes onto the pitch and he's able to easily score with that and it, it's uh the winning goal for for UU, so they they win. We we kind of finish up then with a like there's a scene with with Glenda and um, Mr. Nutt going to veterinary and Lady Margalotta and Margalotta kind of being surprised at the the confidence Nutt has gained. Trev and Juliet end up together. There's we kind of finish off at the, at the very end with um, Rid Coley getting a wry smile as 
the um, he gets news about how chaos at Brazenek University, where they've got a is that like a, a hundred foot tall chicken storming around? I think is it their version of Hex runs on chicken eggs instead of ants, uh, and this is all gone kind of pear shaped. And that, that's about it, then, isn't it? Like that's that's how we that's how we close out. More or less, yeah. Uh, there is a point where Andy Shank he is confronted by Pepe in an alley. Oh, and sorry, actually, just one thing. It's not hugely relevant to the plot, but it is one part that I enjoyed quite a lot. Um, once the match is over, Andy Shank is convinced that Trevor has cheated by bringing on the tin can. So he goes up and gives him a running start and a massive kick in the ghoulies. But unfortunately for Andy Shank, uh, before the match, Trevor Likely was gifted a pair of micro male underpants, which basically means he didn't feel it at all. And I think Andy Shank, if not break his foot, like he severely bruises it or something. (laughs) So he's like done basically after that. But um, while he is limping away and I think plotting it, muttering about his general revenge, he is encountered by Pepe, who um, is trying to ensure... Uh, Trev's uh, safety in the interests of keeping Juliet happy in order to keep her working with the, the fashion troupe that it, uh, that he works for. So in doing that, he encounters oh, sorry, what was and and Andy Andy Shank, and basically gives him a bit of a going over before heading off. Yeah, he cuts his. It's kind of crazy. She cuts his face and then uh, like throws something down. Andy's obviously he's bleeding. Can't see what it is. And it's a slice of lemon. And he ends up just instinctively holding to his cut, and uh, as you can imagine, it'd be incredibly painful. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, and uh, that's that's uh, Shine, the final whistle. Do you think yeah. it's all over it is now? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so as I said before, I'm probably going to be a little bit biased here because the fact is it's football and it's just a topic that I don't have a lot of interest in. But I will say that the overall structure of the book, it does some very interesting things that I did like. I did like the approach it took to um, football hooliganism and how that is like football hooliganism and the role of the fans when it comes to like how a game might play out and the general business of football and how it's hugely relevant, much more so than um, people might originally think. I thought that was like a particularly well done like especially in terms of what was it called the, the scrub is that what it's called the, oh the shove the shove yeah 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 and um like they, they're again the deciding factor in so many things and um like in particular i liked how um early on when the unseen academicals are trying to uh organize pretty much every aspect of the game and they get hire the music master to devise a chant for uh the for the team and they're like that's not really how it works you know it's the shove who comes up with the chant it's like yeah that's 100 percent true like all these like uh like what's what's that um you, you probably know tons of famous like uh chants like something like ronaldo has one doesn't he like uh i probably shouldn't be chanting a lot of them on on air but um it, it does remind me of my my sister lives in uh in canada and she went to a, a football match over there and they actually gave them like almost like it reminded me of like uh, from the way she described of mass hymnal sheets like these sheets with chants written on them what? so that they could you know ch- and they had very particular times as well so say you get a a chant you know for your team wins a corner you get a chant if you know when the opposition players is booked now obviously this, this kind of thing does evolve more organically in in matches but it sort of made me think of and look i, I know very little about say like canadian football so i may well be wrong in this but my uh, reading of it was 
Canadian, like, like in, in other, other than hockey, I suppose, which would be similar to, to football and being quite like free flowing. But like the North American sports, like um, American football, uh, baseball, basketball, are quite you know like stop start and regimented in you know you have kind of like like there's a very clear gap between one team attacking and you know versus that team defending and the other team attacking most like probably most um notably to me when I, the only american football match i've been to see when i saw they bring on a whole different team to defend once they lose position of the ball but in any case it felt to me like they're trying to map that kind of culture of having very strict boundaries between events in the match onto a sport that is much more organic in and spontaneous in the way it plays out and it, it sort of can't uh i have like no idea you know i i don't want to say this derisively because i'm sure kind of particularly like north american fans are probably sick of like european football fans sneering at them like, oh, look at their attempts to start this thing but i it, it seemed kind of um it was like like teething problems to me and the the attempts to kind of popularize the game in canada if you're you're handing out kind of the the equivalent of chant sheets and and there's something similar here where it's yeah it's this very uh, pre-planned kind of uh officially designated you know like song written written as opposed to just one uh developed themselves by by the fans i, I gosh a couple of years ago i went to, to an ireland match and the fai had commissioned this kind of brass band to come out and like they, they play you know like just really simple tunes like for like stand up for the boys in green and you know like ole 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 but it was like widely mocked everyone felt like oh like have you got these guys out here because you you think we're not like we're not good enough on our own and we need this kind of conductor to to direct us uh you know when and what's the chant so there is i i think there there's always that um tension in something that is uh seen as so uh wholly of the people and for the people while also being something that's like hugely culturally politically and economically important so you have then interested parties and decision makers kind of wanting to wield more control over certain events and in some cases they're successful and in some cases it just you know falls apart in in ludicrous fashion Mm. i yeah i did find that quite interesting in terms of like how how so many members of like uh the fans like they seem to just be like heavy hitters in terms of like how important they are like i mean uh even trev likely he refers to himself as a face at one point like saying like i'm a face like so you know me and like how you get this like position is something that isn't very clearly defined just it seems to be just down to like how invested you are in the game how loyal you are as a fan like how uh you know how often you attend the matches and so on and so forth but it's just it's not it's very loosely defined and it's interesting because of the parallel between um all these fans and nut himself who's constantly asking have i got worth have i got worth so you know he's in a similar like in in many ways like he's he should be like at the very very top of the game because he's uh, basically building the new game of football from the ground up he knows so much about the game um, he's a great player as well obviously because he can tr- literally throw the ball the other side of the pitch and get bang on but because he's <laughs> and I wonder is there like a class thing like here because like just based on the fact that he seems so educated and there seems to be a bit of a divide there like I this is something you'd probably have to I'd probably have to confirm with you because I just don't know the culture here very well but i imagine there's a certain divide between like someone who like 
would be extremely well spoken and says oh yes I quite enjoy a game of footy uh, versus you know somebody like saying oh yeah I go to every match like pint, pints of it lads like yeah we're there like till three in the morning partying when our team wins and like we'll be wearing all black when our team loses because you know it's like a death in the family that kind of thing you know so there's that level of like you know uh, working class almost fanaticism versus the idea of like middle class uh, it's kind of a casual hobby sort of thing Again, the the bar- the divide here when it comes to Mr. Nutt is very, very uh, shaky at best because while he does have that air of like, oh, you know, whatever, I'm quite interested in this, he's also clearly more invested than anybody because it's almost a way of life for him. And by the same token, while he does have a very distinguished uh, manner of speaking and acting, he at the end of the day, he is an orc. So, like... Uh, you know and yeah that kind of I, I, I couldn't help but think of like you know the idea of fo- football hooliganism and how <laughs> and I know anyone who likes uh, football listening to this podcast all two of them um, are probably <laughs> are probably going to like disown me for this but like I found myself when I thought of orc football hooliganism and say like oh those two go together quite nicely don't they <laughs> but um, I don't know what, what, what are your thoughts on that general idea. Yeah, I, I think the class thing is is interesting because this this is one of the most class conscious books Pratchett has written. I think you know, mm. like certainly comments come up with us like you have that great uh, Vimes' rumination on the boots theory of economics in in Men at Arms is <laughs> yeah. you know and, and the idea of the kind of like the barriers that are there for the poor and uh, the, the great like in fact if it ever came up before it tended to be in watch books because they're so urban focused of um you know another one would be the the people in is it like oh, I can never ever name it is a Cockbill Street where Vimes initially came from and you know in Feet of Clay he goes back there and there's that whole thing about like like. Oh, you know, saving up all your money so you could have a good funeral, but not spending it on any like not you know being poor in every other respect, and mm. these people who'd follow these rules that that the the rich discount and that like the the kind of underclass, the criminal class discount as well, and it, it's just there to keep them in their place. So so it's definitely something he's like taught and, and written on, but I suppose here we get it very apparently in the the upstairs downstairs divide of people like Glenda and Juliet and Trev and their families and, and friends on one side who like are the servant class in, in Unseen University and then people like the wizards and veterinary and the decision makers who you know are, are the kind of the, the upper classes uh, and, and the, the cultural and political divides between them and it's always something that's been there in football because I essentially what he's tapping into here and, and again I don't want to waste too much time wondering about like or arguing for oh he was definitely thinking this or thinking that but what he's tapping into in a sense of what this resounds off in, in wider cultures are really two events and the first one is in Victorian times when the game of football as we know it today got developed it was all of these like really chaotic street football the kind of stuff he, he describes quite uh, vividly it, with that match they go to at the start all of that being codified by um, uh, private school, which confusingly they call public school in, in England. I've never quite got to the bottom of that, but uh, anyway, like, like like you know, posh private school boys kind of codifying this as as these games that they could play both between one another and as sort of training to uh, you know to build themselves up as manly exemplars of the British Empire when they didn't have any wars to fight at the moment, like the old wars are won and the, the playing fields of Eton mentality. I can't remember it was Churchill or, or Wellington that said that, but in any case, um, so they built that up. So they begin codifying these rules. What's interesting is then, so initially you see um, 
like in, in early uh, English and British football, a dominance of the upper classes, like the first real nationally organized football competition is the first FA Cup in 1872. And all of the early ones are won by these kind of like teams of uh, either university related teams or teams basically made up of posh people who went to the same school together. And it isn't until I think it's the 18... 18- 80s or so you have like like a, a blackburn olympic comes down from the, the north of england and they're all these these like working men and they win and there's just it's really funny when you read the kind of accounts in the newspapers at the time of like they go down to london for the cup final and it's like horror of all these northern you know like uh, kind of workmen coming down and besmirching london with their presence and at the <laughs> same time you've got this argument about professionalism as well like when they organize a sport it's an amateur sport because it's upper class people who feel like they don't want to sullied with money or you know we can't bring money into this old fellow it's it's more the working classes that uh, and uh, that are agitating for it to be professional because they're like if you're working 10 hours in a mine or a factory you don't really have much time to give football afterwards if you want to be any way good at it it has to be something you're being paid for that then you can devote your your time Mm. and energy to and support your family with so that kind of divide of the upper class is kind of imposing rules on this working class game, but then that giving a sort of platform for working class people to succeed both financially and in kind of making themselves famous and and renowned public figures in a way that hadn't really existed before. That's sort of what he's he's touching on here with the whole like scenes with veterinary and the captains and, you know, what Glenda's in, in particular is very, is a character that's really conflicted about like, the morality of this and 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 mm-hmm. what you know what what's going to kind of become of the game and and the people who play it. So there's that, and then there's also the early nineties gentrification of English football, uh, which uh, like I'm going to try and recount this really quickly so as not to to bore people who aren't too into it. But essentially, you have kind of like game being stigmatized and, and declining in terms of kind of attendance figures and, and sponsorship and so on throughout the 70s and 80s because of rampant hooliganism problems this reaches ahead with some horrible events in the 80s like the, the Heisel the disaster in 85 and the, the Hillsborough disaster in 89 which is less hooliganism based and more the authorities the, the really old stadiums that are fit for purpose and the authorities kind of not uh, I suppose like knee jerk, knee assuming hooliganism and, and uh, cause, causing trouble as a as a consequence. So we have what's called the Taylor Report, where there's a, a report produced that but whereby all the stadiums have to uh, basically become all seater stadiums, uh, which which makes at uh, once makes going to the match safer, but also I suppose less. Um, makes it a, a more sanctified experience you know there isn't as much kind of chaos and spontaneity when everyone's sitting down in their mm. assigned seats at the same time kind of english football kind of gets a, a boost they make the semi-finals of the world cup in italia 90 there's suddenly this huge inter- middle burgeoning middle class interest in the game and it becomes kind of more respectable to to write about it and to think about it and so on or something the premier league began so the the english football clubs began to get much more expensive but again there's this divide between so all this is making the, the game and the people who play and work in it richer. It's kind of extending the uh, cultural sphere of, of the game beyond the beyond the working classes to like uh, other um, other classes and other sections of, of British and, and particularly English culture. But it, then there's also this feeling of something's being lost. Like it's not, you know, you, you most commonly hear complained about now. What like, oh, these players have played so much, like they can't relate to the fans. They don't, you know. 
they they don't really represent the the, the clubs like Manchester United, Liverpool, you know, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. They they're like they're have no real relationship with those cities anymore. They're just giant conglomerate brands like Apple or Disney or something. Like and you know those complaints can often be phrased in really overblown hysterical ways, but there definitely is a lot of validity and substance to like something that's being lost. So I kind of think that's what he's going at in the the class tension of like that in some ways it's a lot better for the trevs of this world if when when the game gets like this like he's not caught in this kind of shove culture and uh, anymore and presumably he has this chance to like rather than just being a candle dribbler he can be this famous footballer but at the same time there's this worry of you know oh hang on look this is all these posh toffs who run our lives in every other respect and now they're coming down on the one thing that was ours and they're the ones setting the rules and telling us what to do and so on. And it's something then you, you see played out on a tactical level, which is something he satirizes with Nut. Like, this idea of, um, you know, like, oh, passion, and you just need to go out there and get them, versus, you know, uh, thinking deeply and kind of thinking, okay, well, we're going to play this way in anticipation of them playing this way, and we're going to adopt these strategies. And even having to talk about it like this, I'm really simplifying these, these things into strict binaries. They never really are, but there's stuff like... Like in in the uh, Austria and Hungary, which is where like like European football really begins to change in the twenties. There's this class divide between the like the middle classes who go to these coffee houses and develop these tactics, and like the the working class factory teams. And there's just these hilarious kind of stigma they both attach to one another. Like it's just, a, I, I think the phrase that always stuck with me is like, uh, oh, there's. Their minds are addled by coffeehouse smog. Like these, like <laughs> wild ideas they're coming up with can, can never truly work. And it's something again. Uh, this is probably a tiny section of our listenership is going to be interested in this, so I won't go on too long. But we're actually seeing it play out really pertinently now with Irish football, with Stephen Kenny becoming the manager of the Irish national team. Where there's uh, so far, obviously, as even people who you know don't uh, follow football can understand, becoming the manager in the midst of a global pandemic isn't like the best of you know the best of starts it's like really hard to judge yeah. to what account any performance or result can act is actually reflective of wider trends in the team when it's happening in empty stadiums which again never has the role of, of fans to football become seeming like an important thing being cleared on it is now when you're seeing empty stadiums or or this horrible fake noise piped in but there's that there's the fact that the you know that the players haven't really had a closed season because the previous season was extended uh, after the initial break in play caused by the, the COVID-19 pandemic. I, in any case, Kenny has talked at length about like wanting to reinvent Irish football and get away from this idea of Ireland just as a kind of like, you know, passion-based team who goes out there and puts them under pressure and like, you know, punts it long and uh, so on. And, and like, like my reading of it so far is, well, if we have been kind of like, you know, passing and moving the ball much better, we haven't, we've hardly been scoring at all. And as a consequence, I've have, have been losing. And I, I, I think it's ludicrous to, um, it will be ludicrous to kind of call for the manager's head after a handful of games in these mm. remarkable circumstances. But what's interesting is the arguments you see flying around, like the people who are against Kenny are framing it like he is somehow, you know, is so obsessed with this kind of pseudo intellectual strategic stuff that he's like, 
wantonly forgoing just wanting to win matches you know mm. like like as if the two things are mutually exclusive like you know you can play football or you can win but you, you can't do both and and there like there's almost this anticipation in like you see like the comments on social media or even in some figures in the media ex-players and pundits and so on of like oh some people might you know like love this fancy passing stuff but what we really need it's like oh hang on like, like who are you talking about here like who's this straw man figure you've created who's saying like worshipping at the the altar of like tactics and possession football and like pissing over the idea of just getting the ball in the net uh, and it, I, like that these arguments kind of spring up immediately like like literally within a game within this first match they were being had really speak to how deep those currents run that Pratchett's getting in here with, with Nutt and with like Glenda's worries about what, what will happen to the game of well, uh, tactically you see it particularly with Nutt and the kind of scepticism around like what he's doing and how the Ankh-Morpork United team want to play and so on so I, I really like that side of it because I was like oh wow you know that's something that not everyone would realise and yet it's just like it's always under the like you could pick at any period in football history and that that kind of argument is always running under the surface of it mm. somewhere you know not always in the same places but it's always there somewhere so i really enjoyed that that came to the the fore sorry i should give you a word because you're going to say something that isn't going to be about the current state of irish football <laughs> or victorian reform of the game and will be of interest to our listeners no 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 not at all quite the opposite in fact uh, <laughs> so i just one thing um i just wanted to throw in there that i that i really appreciated about this was um the way pratchett handles the conclusion of the book i think is very masterfully well done because Obviously, almost the entire book is building up to this like match between the academicals and like United. So it's it's very much going to be seen like as a binary match. But crucially and very importantly, it isn't that in the end, because obviously you can look at it as uh, the Wizards themselves being like this uh, middle class version who are trying to like commodify the game of football. And obviously uh, United as being like this more pure but also rougher around the edges like view of football uh so you can see that as almost a massive clash but obviously like you said this um the conversation the conversation and argument around this these ideas are always present and you could you couldn't exactly resolve that in this book by just saying like and the two clashed and this one won the end but it's not like that at all because the united team ironically are not united because they're like half made up of some of the old captains and half made up of some of these like absolute hooligans so when uh the wizards eventually win and the match is over the captain of the team go turns around to andy shank and basically completely belittles him give him a smack and saying like what the hell were you doing like you know that's complete bullshit obviously so they're not completely on board with the way they were behaving so like it's it's kind of like there there isn't really a conclusion there as such like as opposed to like a very clean cut match winner versus loser like uh, and even if it was a case of uh, the loser graciously said like the better man won okay that's still a statement saying this version was the winner you know therefore this is like my view that it's better like you know I I'm glad that football was commodified or versus football should be pure and like you know not commodified in the way the middle class have been putting it forward but because that's not the case it's still a little muddy and unclear and therefore like that argument can continue which so i'm just i'm glad the way that he structured it. i think it, it was done really really well at the end one thing i wanted to ask you that i found myself think 
particularly when we discover that nut is an orc, I found myself thinking of the concept of nature versus nurture, um, which we talked about a lot in college. And um, I was just talking about it with a third year class I, I taught last uh, last week. Yeah, talking about nature versus nurture. Uh, yeah, and like obviously now with nut, it's very very obvious like how it feeds into him. So like uh, he is like an orc, which. Uh, as as it's perceived by most people that they are just naturally vicious, vicious creatures. And the experiment to kind of like see if they can make a civilized character out of him by basically educating him and uh, teaching him manners. And he is about as far opposite from the conception of an orc that you could possibly imagine. Like he's just the complete opposite. And I know I feel like this probably feeds into a lot of other characters in some subtle ways. Even Trev likely... Now, this is something, again, that you'll be able to comment on a lot more than I can. But um, the assumption I was going to make was when, as soon as Trev likely got onto the pitch, because he was like, you know, the uh, he's the son of the legendary Dave likely, then obviously he's going to be absolutely amazing at football because not only, like, of, not only because of his lineage, he's also shown, like, his uh, skills using the tin can as well. So you presume that that would translate into the typical game of football, but that's not quite the case. And that could, you could just say that there's a bit of nature versus nurture there because he hasn't been conditioned to play, like, the more civilized game of football. So that he's, like, just... He doesn't meet the expectations that you might expect in this book, which is interesting in and of itself. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this idea? I, I think with with note it's it's kind of it's very up and down like he um as i said i i like how he sort of embodies this like uh this exaggeration of this kind of like uh, like more intellectual artistic tactical approach to to football and to the bafflement of the people around him and he, and he has some fun interactions but i think he's he's just he's too extreme as a character like both in his in his um his flaws and his struggles and in his um his virtues and his, his strengths, right? Like he he's this polymath who's incredibly intelligent. There doesn't seem to be any area of knowledge with which he isn't proficient. We have him kind of setting up a, a sort of almost like a firework show with this incredible feat of engineering with the chandelier at you know, when he introduces the team at the at the the, the feast, we have him kind of uh, really well versed in, in philosophy and in languages and then also in um you know in, in football tactics as well we also have him incredibly strong to the point where he can't really die uh, i mean i think it's, it's you have to cut their heads off or something to, ki- to kill an orc we see him hit in the heart that stops his heart it gets up we also see him at the end he can makes it clear he can uh twist andy's head off in fact he, he does that earlier when he um you know he uh shakes his hand and almost breaks his breaks his fingers um, and we've talked before about how it's reductive to view the socio-political uh, issues that, that Pratchett explores through this world as a simple, allegorical, one-to-one comparison to real-life issues. You know, fantasy species X is clearly a stand-in for real-life oppressed group Y. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, certainly you can see resonance and comparisons there, but when you try and map it on so uh, so exactly, I, I think you're barking up the wrong tree there. But and I think what also can be neglected in those analyses is Pratchett's not only in dialogue with the real world, but also with fantasy and to some extent just pop culture in general's conventions and uh, the, the implications those conventions and tropes have for the real world. So we see it with something like, uh, say, you know, he, many times he lampoons how a particular fantasy convention like falls apart when it's 
put up against the mundane reality of just everyday life and, and human nature as he presents it to Squirrel, but it's a, from very early on, Two Flowers rosy-eyed view of Ankh Morpork as this city of heroes versus, like, exploring how these heroes would actually be quite cutthroat guys who you wouldn't want to trust and, and wouldn't take too well to a fawning fanboy. To say stuff like, um, I think I mentioned the example before in, in Moving Pictures when Ginger is protesting about one of her love interests being a troll and the troll is acting hurt and he's kind of presenting it in terms as if it's like a racist thing as if it was say like you know like a white actor stopping what the paired with a a black actor or a Jewish actor or something when it's like he's sort of sending up the idea of oh yeah like while I I can explore real life oppression and stigma and all through these true trolls and dwarfs and the rest of it you can only go so far with that because Ginger's uh, objection of not wanting to be paired uh, with a creature made of solid rock who would presumably crush her <laughs> as soon as he hugged her is a much more reasonable one than yeah, like, yeah. racist <laughs> objection in the real world. But yet it's, it's kind of like being treated like that. So I think that sort of stuff, you know, something he's, he's as a historian doing and here he's focusing on the fantasy convention of like the always chaotic evil nature mm. of orcs, which is a subject that, that actually troubled Tolkien, I think right up until the end when he's revising his works he, he apparently he was quite troubled by this idea of the implications of portraying this species who is just always you know evil no matter what and it's obviously it's something that's kind of has a long legacy in fantasy you know like you can take orcs or trollocs in say the wheel of time or there's any amount of other kind of creatures who are just there to be killed by our heroes and for us the readers not to have any sympathy to so it's an interesting thing from that point of view for him to uh deconstruct and explore but it's it's like it's so extreme that it's completely unmoored from any real life issue so again it would be a mistake to to say oh i would love if nuts plight just clearly represent like palestinians or autistic people or you know some very clear that that would be a mistake i think to want something that's really clear one-to-one but you do want some kind of connective tissue where you can kind of see oh yeah, the discrimination he's facing, that resounds with me as as a person in real life from all I've read and all I've seen because you can compare it to something. Whereas, like, like it's it's just so extreme to just have this creature that is, like, 100% hated and feared uh, and yet at the same time is perfect and lovable in every other way, you know? Mm. it's it's It just seems, I don't know, it's, it's, it's too, he's like, Mary Sewish, like it's just too extreme of of both plight and and perfection to to really resound with with the with the real world, and it, it kind of reminded me of. Did you see or come across that um, Netflix film Bright with, with Will Smith? I haven't watched it, but yeah, I know I know what it's about and all that. So yeah, yeah, like like it has. Uh, like a backstory of again there's like like orcs who you know are stigmatized because they were on the wrong side of this uh you know light versus darkness struggle years before and i think bright is much more ham-fisted in trying to kind of present this as like allegorical to real life issues in a way where it's like you know because that that History obviously plays an enormous part in in stigmas and and modern struggles, but it's like there's not it's not that one to one issue. You know what I mean? Like, like the people who are racist against black people have uh, say like have you know this mad hodgepodge of pseudoscience and disinformation and history in their head to kind of create to, to create this uh, prejudice. They don't have one event that they point to and they're like 
they were bad this one time and we've never forgiven them. And and I picked like, you know, racism against black people out of this game. You could pick any prejudice like that and while there are big historical events that sort of play into these prejudices, there's never that one to one thing of like, oh they they were on the wrong side of this, you know, thing and we've never forgiven them and that's the only thing, the mm. only foundation to this prejudice. It's always interwoven with all these other complicated factors. So with orcs where, you know, it's just presented as like yeah, they were on the wrong side of this war, and now they're hated forever. I, I don't know. It just seems so simplistic, I suppose, and extreme. That while I, I see what he's doing in in trying to play with these typical fantasy conventions and tropes, it mm. doesn't really. I don't know. It doesn't really work for me because I. I just. It, it just seems too unreal. Yeah, I can certainly respect that, and uh, it is a little, you know, dissatisfying the way it plays out. I guess one way you could, to, to play devil's advocate, one way you could look at it is it re- isn't really about the why of, um, you know, people are treating them this way, of like being racist or specious, but more the actual, the feeling of like, you know, the isolated party. So like how he goes about trying to um, associate with uh, the common people, trying to like become one with people so like he's doing everything he can to like literally going as far as like to train the local soccer team in order to integrate himself into society so um you could look at it that way in that like rather than being about like uh the reason for people's prejudiced views the actual journey of like the isolated party in trying to integrate himself back into society and uh maybe view it that way that's kind of how i looked at it yeah, but again, I see what you mean, but I think his isolation is just too extreme because he's the only orc there, so he's under the perception that everyone mm. hates him, which I just feel like, again, isn't something that tends to happen very often. Like, look, I think almost anyone has found themselves particularly lonely or isolated at times and maybe can relate to that. But in terms of it being like like a struggle of him representing a people that have mm. this prejudice developed against it, you know, like, like they'd have communities and things and those communities might be formed out of shared fear and shared oppression and and so on like i'm not saying they're kind of things that just instantly comfort or or make an oppressed group better that you have a community but they'd be there and just have him as like this incredibly perfect in every practically perfect in every way to quote mary poppins person who's then like the only person in the city who's also occupies the space of being this this uh creature that that's feared and so on it's I don't know, it's just so extreme. And even the fact that, like, like obviously the perception of orcs is that they're real bloodthirsty and, and just killing machines, and he clearly isn't that. But also he is kind of, like, he does ring true to his abilities to, like, that bit at the end when he gets Andy's head and he's like, I could twist it off. You know, it's I just found that such a weird way to... Uh, for him to kind of, I suppose, like like, overcome prejudice or a weird kind of form of, of validation for him you know what i mean it's like and again i'm i, I keep reaching for one-to-one comparisons or for comparisons that articulates better but i don't want to suggest that this should be always you know mapped easily one-to-one but it reminds me of so a lot of uh you know like like muslims or, or arabs in general would be discriminated on particularly since say like 9-11 over the last right. 20 years of like yeah. oh you know they're all potential terrorists and so on and it's as if you had a scene with like this you know, Arab character who's stigmatized against of like people see him and think, oh, he could be carrying a bomb or you know a gun or or whatever, and just about to break it into terrorism. It's as if he like confronted his his bully and took out a bomb he 
had made a home. I was like, yes, I have made it. I'd never use it, though, because I'm actually really nice. But yeah. I have made it, and I can do that. Doesn't that scare you? You know? And it, it's it's just it's a weird way for him mm, to kind of yeah, win yeah. the day by showing, yeah, you fear me because you say I'm going to tear, tear your heads off. Yeah, I could do that. But I'm not going to. And, and look, I, I get that. That in itself is a big thing. Like, like I think just as an overarching philosophy of life, regarding strength as what you choose to do rather than what you can do, I think is a very important lesson. Like this idea mm. of, you know, like I can do that, but I'm not doing that. And there's a world of difference, you know, there. Yeah, uh, that is important. But I, again, it's just, it's, it's very strange. And also just, again, adds to the sense of extremeness of like, oh yeah, he is, he's prejudiced against, but he could also kill any of them if, if he wanted. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah, it's, no. It's like, I know it's like watching Superman be bullied or something like, and you're just like, yeah, well, that probably is a pretty miserable experience for him, but it's, you know, uh, kind of leaving by the fact that he could presumably just flick them away. But, you know, no, absolutely. And I, I definitely do agree with you that like, um, it, it didn't quite gel with me. Like there's, there's parts of, uh, Mr. Nutt's character that I really enjoy, but I do agree that like, he is a very, it's a very extreme portrayal of this character who is like, try you know, is uh, we're we're told about uh, this his backstory. So it's the fact that he's an orc, and like we don't even need any previous knowledge there. We can just take what we know from like fantasy tropes and like everything there. We just project there onto that. But everything we know of him as a character is just this like stand up gentleman. Like so, um, yeah. It's 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 it it is an odd one. Uh, one thing I will say, and just. Just to go a little bit off track, which is one thing I did I did really enjoy about it. I have to say I quite like the relationship between him and Glenda. I thought that was a really good romance in this book, which is something that I know Terry Pratchett has struggled with before. Like that to make a good, believable like uh, 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 relationship uh, to portray that. Um, he's I think he's done pretty well, obviously, with both Vi- uh, Vimes and Sybil and Carrot and Angua. Sometimes he's kind of gone up and down with Carrot and Angua. It's been so-so and sometimes pretty good. This one, I have to say, I quite liked now. I thought it was just... Um, it fit for me. And like I think maybe it was the fact that it wasn't dwelt on too much was another reason I liked it. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite sweet and, and um, I suppose, like, intimate in a sort of, like in a way to feel subtle and very personal. Like I, is it when they're sitting up the back of the bus after they, they kind of meet Nut and convince him not to uh, go into self-exile in, in, in uh, Uberwald. And they're just kind of talking away, uh, talking away. And it, it's clear that they have reached some new place in their, their relationship as people they've gone for beyond being friends, but yet it hasn't manifested itself in some big romantic set piece, like a, mm. you know, a rescue or a kiss or a really romantic date or something like that. Mm. Yeah. There is something kind of sweet and, and understated about that. I, I think. And I've, in, in general, I sort of like, um, I I like how uh, conflicted a character Glenda is throughout a, a lot of this, and, and her relationship with Nut is is a big part of that. So that's that's fun. Mm, yeah, and also I think um, Trev and Juliet's relationship is actually quite good too. Um, a very different kind of one, obviously a much much more uh, frivolous sort of relationship, but like one that still works. Um, more so, I think the way it evolves because um, originally you're thinking it's going to be a very simple thing but you can see how Trev starts to second guess himself when he realises that Juliet is actually like this model and uh, he's wondering like is he good enough for her 
and which in itself is quite sweet because I feel like in a book like this it would be very easy to play it for last where like Trev kind of acknowledges that Juliet herself is a bit dim so he could just be like god you beautiful idiot and just kind of leave it at that but he does seem to genuinely respect her and um you know and Juliet is shown to have some great qualities like she's very defensive of like Mr. Nut when um you know people start uh hurling insults at him and all that and uh she can be you know <laughs> even though her her answer to a lot of problems are to offer people a big kiss but it seems to work in a lot of situations so um yeah I think for the most part I quite like the relationships in this if only because they're quite understated but still not like uh one note they have like layers to them, so yeah, I think they're quite good. Yeah, I I did think with her that um she does fall into that thing. I, I think it was a, a complaint of ours with a uh, Tawny and Todd, where it's like the beautiful woman who's really thick, but in a kind of childish way, yeah, ch- childlike way, which which I just find uh uncomfortable and hackneyed. It's yeah, like, I'm not uh, a fan. Yeah, I mean, again, the, there is that sort of like like it's a cliche is all this time and um I, I like I, I it's it's not the kind of not the most uh specious supposition to say of, of someone of either sex I think that like you know if they have these innate physical gifts be it like you know great good looks or athleticism or something that they've only had to rely on that throughout all their life so they haven't had to work at other things because is it well like isn't it like an episode of um 30 Rock where, where they played off with John Hamm oh yeah like, they initially think he's like uh, perfect, but it's actually just like he's incredibly good looking and hasn't had to work on anything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, so like I, I, you know, it isn't the most egregious thing, but I don't know. I've just seen that like too often in in this world where it's like, oh, this beautiful woman who's really stupid as well, and in this, you know, uh, yeah, in, in this childlike fashion, and, and I sort of like the way that's explored to an extent with this idea of like. Glenda kind of just as her friend has just adapted this big sister almost motherly like role that has trapped the two of them within it like Glenda has these realizations at the the fashion show of like actually she's doing really well here and yeah I, I think it's afterwards like she's thinking about it and then she goes to Juliet she's like oh watching with that and Juliet's like oh no you're right I, I shouldn't do it and she feels horrified that she has kind of taught Juliet to set her expectations so low and she realised that she's the one holding her back by kind of like smothering her in this way albeit with good intentions uh, I like that and, and and it then makes sense if Juliet is someone who isn't very intelligent and is kind of aware of that and self-conscious about that that she would just kind of like of course uh, even if it meant turning away this seeming dream come true assume oh no like Glenda knows best I, I'm I'm thick I don't, I don't know my mind on these things so I, I like that element of it but yeah just in general it's it's kind of like it's hackneyed at, at, at times it plays into two that depiction of like the working class characters where they speak in sort of um you know phonetic dialect like, oh, like yeah. there's a lot of inits and a lot of you know dropped letters dropped h's and dropped things which I always irks me in books because with the the only one I know who does it the other way is um and this will probably go over the head of non Irish listeners, but Paul Howard who writes the Russell Carol Kelly stuff, oh, which yeah. for non Irish listeners is like a kind of long running satirization of like the the uh, posh upper middle classes uh, of Ireland. So he writes everyone in phonetic speak, like he writes 
the posh people speaking where, where they say Roish instead of Roish, yeah. so he writes it like, like Y-S-H, and he finishes all their sentences with question marks, even if it's not a question to indicate the upper inflection in their voice. But then Ross has a son from the inner city from a, a one-night stand, and he writes his stuff like with, you know kind of phonetics to indicate that that he, he has this working class Dublin accent and so on but there's a kind of even handedness because he just it, it's across all of those things whereas here we get Trev and Juliet and occasionally Glenda written like that and then the the like uh, posh characters like Rid Cully and the other wizards and veterinary I suppose they're just speaking in dictionary English so it's kind of like they're normal and these guys are speaking the wrong way and it's odd too because it's something he's touched on before when um I think he has Vimes think about like like what is it Rust pronounced his years with a H that's like yeah years. It was in it was it was in making money as well. I can't remember who the character was, but there was definitely one or two there who, they yeah they just like they alter the English a little bit the the print so that it's emphasised like the very upper class way they speak. Yeah, or or the um, the curator in a Todd of the museum, you know, yes. when he has like really and it's, it's yeah. And, you know, I understand obviously he's depicted Reed Cully and the the rest of the UU faculty before and hasn't done this so it would be a very awkward thing if he suddenly yeah. started writing like this to kind of be even handed about it but I just think just just don't like don't kind of lean on the, the phonetic uh, there, there's a term for it that escapes my mind but when you write the, the characters with, with their, their kind of accent showing like that with the, the working class characters it also feels quite inconsistent as well it's sort of like I, I look I, I've been combed through this with a at home but I kind of suspect like at the moments it, it feels like at the moments in which they're saying something that's you know more intelligent they're kind of plot important a lot of these you know inits and uh, you know kind of uh, accent ticks just drop from their speech and they, they speak quote unquote normally Mm. Um, so yeah, like that—that that was something I kind of wasn't mad about with the the class side of things. I, I think there there is like definite positives to that. I mean, fair play to them for taking it on. Like as as prejudices and socio political divides go, class can kind of very often be forgotten because of how fluid and uh, I don't want to say invisible, but kind of subtle it can be compared to like other categorizations and discriminations that are like like race or gender or religion based, but. I, I do think it's sort of inconsistent in the success to which he pulls it off. Like, I like the fact that he explores the limitations of elements of working class culture, like, say, hooliganism that you spoke about, like, like uh, that, that kind of epiphany Trev has, which, like, if we're being critical, is maybe a bit sudden, like, it's just one event and it completely turns around. Albeit a very extreme event, he, he thinks he's just seen his friend get killed, but, it, you know, he completely turns around his view of, of uh, the shove and of the kind of, like, hooligan culture he's been living in and and he can suddenly articulate a, a kind of stinging critique of that but look i i still think that the critique he offers is is like quite good and it's it's quite a good um set piece and it's just it's an interesting thing when you have those characters begin to think their way out of of those things like like glenda with the romance novels as well where she's suddenly realizing of like you know how all of these are the same and they're giving her this kind of distorted view of, of how the world works and I, I, so I like that he managed to do all of that without going for the hackneyed sort of bread and circuses approach to football. That like is sort of a common, I don't know, really I suppose shallow 
pseudo Marxist critique of of any form of pop culture really of like oh this is just you know this is just keeping you all you guys occupied like the Romans did with you know bread and circuses while the while the upper classes completely cheat us like you're a fool if you're putting your time into football or pop music or you know reality TV or whatever it might be which for for many reasons I think is a very shallow critique so I, I like the way he was able to look at how certain elements of this culture constrain people, like the the hooliganism, the kind of toxic masculinity, machismo of that, like the romance novels and so on, um, like the kind of don't get ideas above your station that Glenda feels with Juliet, without just going for a kind of sweeping, all of these are dupes and, you know, they need to swallow the red pill and wake up kind of approach to it. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I mean, if nothing else, um, I will say that the... It's it's great that uh, Terry Pratchett approached this in such a way that like again there's no easy answers and he does look at like the positives as well as the negatives and like for example one thing that I re- I initially was a little unsure about was when they're in the shove and there's this moment that almost seems like magic where like I think it was what was it It's like a kind of spontaneous chant almost like propels around the or like almost a chant from the inside it's a, like a feeling and like like trevor t- talks to dot about it and says that they they're all aware of it but they don't speak about it yeah and as well as that like there's characters who i think it's ponder stibbins at one point says that like he's never attended a football match in his life but suddenly he had these memories of being up on his like dad's shoulders like watching a match and like him passing up like food up onto him stuff like that and ponder stibbins in particular was like very interesting for me in this because he was kind of like me in this book in that he was completely out of his depth and had no interest in this whatsoever but like by the same token he had this epiphany like where he was like oh yeah like he remembers those good old days and the sense of excitement which as i said i don't have much interest in soccer but i have gone with like you guys i think i think who do I, I went i've been to a soccer game before and i enjoyed it while i was there so like i get that i get that there is that sense of like you know almost an internal natural gut feeling that just brings out this like level of camaraderie like you know because you're you're fighting for your team like it's you know it's there's a deeper meaning to it but as well as that ponder stibbins and by extension obviously terry pratchett goes into like the negative sides of that and like how isolated it makes him feel because when they have that was the spirit of the gym teacher who's trapped in the whistle that they use and like every time someone blows the whistle he gets like a brief like moment of existence where he just basically possesses whoever blows the whistle and says things like you know if you didn't bring your uh kit you'll be playing in your shorts or uh you know gosh the rain will just like make you grow hair in your chest and stuff like that and like ponder stibbins also thinks back on how he was always the one left standing beside the really fat kid when teams were being picked and like mm. that brought many memories back to me when i was a kid. again something i really didn't enjoy but it was very well articulated the way the the positives and the negatives are put right out there and like neither side is really pushed as the view that you should have it's just kind of like this is how some people feel about it this is also how some people feel about it and then just like examine it through a more like social social economic and political uh viewpoint which i think is really great yeah it's not about someone like ponder suddenly being kind of like realizing oh actually i should like this and yeah participate in it like obviously he has a kind of i suppose like a more distant interest to administrator's interest in how he 
uh, the rules and so forth, but it's not like him suddenly kind of realizing that, like, you know, I shouldn't let that one mean PE teacher ruin me forever. I actually love playing football. Like, he just, you know, he isn't, it isn't his uh, his bag. Um, but equally, it's not about kind of like this sort of, um, I don't know, massive, like, moment of guilt or reconsideration on, on the part of more uh, normally sporty people like Rick Cully kind of realizing of, like, Oh, you know, I've well, what, I've been wasting my time just kicking this bit of lead around. Uh, you know, there are better things to be doing. It's more even-handed in that approach. I do think the kind of magical element of it is a bit uneven, and and to me feels like a bit of a missed avenue. Like that early part with the the kind of I don't know what you would call it. Yeah, like a, like an inner chant or a feeling coming around the the show. Yeah, Trevor Nutter in the match sort of sets up that this is going to be something like in the way that we saw with um with uh, the clicks in moving pictures and yeah. with musical mm. rocks in and soul music of that it's something that's clearly obviously a, a, a depiction of, of something we know in real life but it's taking the cultural force of, of that thing and, and sort of manifesting it in a really, I suppose, in a magic realist kind of way. Um, and we don't really get that. And I, I sort of I think it's a pity. I mean, we, we kind of get it, it leads up to the bit at the end with... Juliet sort of floating above the the stadium, which is actually a reference to like she's her model name is Jules and she's all in gold. The uh, the current World Cup trophy, people are probably familiar with it. It's like a just got the globe kind of on top of the um, oh yeah the, yeah. the, the mount. But the, the the original World Cup trophy was to call it the Jules Rimet Trophy, named after the the founder of the World Cup, Jules Rimet. And it was a very small, simple thing, and it was just a woman ho- winged with wings holding a dish. Mm. Um, so she's essentially the Jules Remake trophy at the end, which is a nice kind of pun and reference for uh, like football fans or particularly you know fans. They, that trophy uh, has gone since the nineteen seventies. But that does raise an or, issue, though. Like I mean, because the idea is like Trev is the one who ultimately wins the match, so it's the idea that he's won the trophy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, he's literally a trophy. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's that's kind of the point. Yeah, that's kind and, of and a worrying like, thing. <laughs> yeah, it isn't. It's not the best implications there. You're yeah, right. Yeah, but I mean, having said that, that went a little, that went over my head now. So I mean, for me, that didn't register at all. But and like, it's not something I feel is really comes across in any other sense. But like, um, no, and uh, to be honest, I, I would think like uh, that bit at the end sort of serves two purposes of. It is this nice. It's kind of like like the giant um, Oscar statue in uh, moving pictures. You know, you might conceivably read that and not realize what he was kind of poking at, or or like the end of moving pictures being an in, inversion of King Kong. You know, mm-hmm. you you might not. You uh, it seems to me probably most people would get the reference, but you may not. And it's, yeah, yeah. It, but it's just there anyway. But I think so here it's there if you get it, but it's also to I suppose make the climax of the book being a match feel kind of magical and momentous for readers rather than just being a football match particularly you know as i'm sure he's well aware of like a huge amount of readership who wouldn't be interested in football so wouldn't kind of like place inherent importance or interest in who wins it i always find it funny with um it's a touchy subject to bring up now and more than we want to wade into given jk rowling's comments on on trans stuff but but prior to all of that coming, when I was reading Harry Potter growing up, I like got really into the Quidditch scenes, and I remember like being like over the moon when he wins the Quidditch Cup finally in in the third one. But I know uh, it kind of surprised me to find a lot of people were like sort of bored of those after the really? initial novelty of you know of, of the initial novelty of just hearing how this mad sport works. But then once you're like in book two and you're getting a description of the match, they're like, uh, whatever. Whereas uh, maybe it's just 
I, although I probably read them before I was into football, but I don't know. I always found them. So uh, I, I perhaps um, perhaps just kind of conscious of like there'll be a lot of people for whom the climax of a book being a football match won't seem something that's naturally very exciting. So he adds this magical element. But I just think that the overall, the kind of, the game having this magical force is something that, I don't know, could really be uh, mined to greater effect. Like, particularly that scene you mentioned with Ponder and the Wizards all talking about getting that feeling of being there with their dads or with their granddads. I think, like, there's something really powerful there. You know, like, I am... so I, I only got into football when I was 14, uh, relatively late, I suppose. Like, most people are into it, just grow up uh, playing it and watching it since uh, they're old to, to walk. But I've always had, like, a, quite a good relationship with my dad. But I think it got a lot better, probably, when I when I got into football as well. Like, it's it's something we, we talk about a lot. We talk about a lot of other issues through it. And, yeah, it's just, I, I definitely think that that kind of... Uh, that that sort of feeling of that that, that filial father son relationship in uh, like having some kind of in in the disc world version of football having some sort of innate power mm. or just a feeling of of I don't know like like bonding in in real life I think I told you the story in this podcast before about being at after Ireland played Sweden in Euro twenty sixteen and I was there and uh, that night just sitting under the, the uh, in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower well not in the shadow it was night uh, <laughs> figuratively speaking in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower we're riding under it just myself and my friend and three Swedish fellows we had met just drinking cans and talking to one another in this sense of like we're complete strangers we'll never see one another again and, and yet we're kind of like friends for this night based you know based on this I think there's something kind of magical there that he could have tapped into of uh, like like an, an in a way that he did with with rock music and uh with film um but yeah i, I just think it's 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 unfortunate that it kind of just sits there unevenly we just get dribs and drabs of this like you know magical belief powered side of the game that doesn't really come up to much yeah no i think you're absolutely right and like it's a shame as well because whereas that part seems like to be a little bit flat I feel like he explores like the the hooligan ism aspect of like you know football fans. He explores that quite well, but unfortunately, because the other part is quite flat, that makes it a little bit uneven. It kind of paints it in quite a negative light because like pretty much everything, all all the conflict and excitement in the book kind of comes from any like conflict within like the the, the, the fans. So you know that that kind of paints a bit of an issue that's a bit of an issue there but um one thing i wanted to ask you now because now this is something again i know i'm very biased on and i just want to get your two cents on it while a lot of parts of this book i think are quite well done a key issue and what really drags it down for me and it's almost like a i feel like a two-year-old saying this is it's just i didn't find it interesting <laughs> and like i don't know if this is a case of it's just me because or like and like just my lack of interest in the sport or was it something in like uh the way it was written because like i don't i don't think it was but like the match in particular i found to be a letdown like um like you said the the whole like um the fact that they put a magic shield thing over it so they can't actually use magic within the match uh that kind of made it a little boring to me because like as soon as as soon as I heard of the idea of unseen academicals, oh the wizards are playing football. I'm like, oh cool, okay, a football match where the wizards. You're picturing that scene in bed knobs and broomsticks where like these more or less animals play <laughs> a much a much better football match. <laughs> but like um, it kind of it it falls into that. See, 
a lot of sports movies they they have this typical problem where almost the entire movie is the build up to like the match or the game like mm-hmm. Rocky's a prime example where they get it right because it is much more about the journey like so much so that the actual result of the match isn't important it's just the fact that he got there well I, I would say too there are certain sports that seem to lend themselves more to uh, like depiction on film like like boxing is a prime example where for mm-hmm. one thing it's so I mean there's, there's a huge amount of kind of I suppose like strategy and subtle science to boxing that if you're really into it like people who are really into boxing probably a lot of them love Rocky but they also probably watch the fight scenes in it and think like you know yeah. like, oh, look at his stance or look at why isn't he throwing his hands up? but it so there's something that like obviously there is much more in boxing to understand and to get and it's mm. probably true of any any combat sport um, you know whatever MMA or like amateur wrestling and things as well if as an outsider, if you're watching it when it's being presented to you in a, a film context where your stakes just are like you like the protagonist, so you want them to win, mm-hmm. it's very primal and easy to get into. You're, it's people hitting one another, so you can kind of clearly derive it from that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even something like like the more stop start uh, uh, North American sports, like say baseball, is is kind of like easy to depict because you can just build up to that moment of someone stepping up to the bat, you know whatever bottom of the night the team's losing and so forth football because it's so spontaneous and flowing it's very hard to, to film without mm. just like do you remember that show that used to be on um, Sky Dream Team the kind of soap opera about the, the fictional football team no can't say it okay, this was a staple, a staple of my youth like uh, <laughs> but but um they would just use footage because obviously it was sky so they you know owned the rights to the footage they would air oh, yeah, yeah. real premier league matches so it was just repurpose that for when they would depict football in the in the show itself obviously the show is much more built around but you know the uh, soap operatic kind of drama of the characters and so on but i remember thinking i was like oh this isn't the worst solution in the world because when you see films trying to present football fictionally there's something maybe again maybe it's me because i'm so familiar about it there's something that really falls down like the other thing too is, is with football and like say something like uh you know, boxing or baseball or whatever else that would end in some really dramatic moment. Football obviously runs 90 minutes and then st- the yeah. whistle goes. So you, you can either have the cliche of having a last minute goal or maybe a penalty shootout that just ends it. Or you have to find another way of getting the drama out. And I, I was very disappointed that he went for the kind of like hackneyed like like literally next goal wins like like what yeah you, yeah when you're playing with <laughs> they cut it short yeah. <laughs> yeah you have to go in for dinner when you're a kid mm. like all right lads next goal wins not not even just having a like a like a last minute goal which for me also undermined the fact that this is meant to be kind of welcoming in this new form of football yeah. that will be much more safer and enjoyable for the people of Ankh-Morpork Park and also presumably take the likes of Trev Likely from kind of you know uh, just faces in the shove to giving them a real chance to be like heroes and presumably like make a living for themselves playing football. So you kind of like that version of the game has to be seen to succeed, like like for the stakes of that to really play out, you know. Mm. And and it doesn't. We get it, that's why I didn't like the can being substituted either. It's like yeah, I wasn't a fan of that. Like yeah, like the happy ending here should be. And I I know what what you said earlier about like it would be an even bigger cliche if he's just suddenly this footballing savant once he gets the ball. But it's still like the happy ending here for them is like not just that they win this match. But like like his whole thing with Juliet earlier is that like oh she's got this modeling career I'm just a candle dribbler I'm not good enough for her and this would be he's thinking oh wow now I'm a a footballer and like 
you know, I can I can make her happy. I feel, yeah, but he's not. Know, it doesn't work that way at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I I didn't like that, and I just think like again, and, and this is kind of harsh because Pratchett's not a football fan, so he, he would notice. But I feel mm. like if you want to go beyond the like last minute golden goal style the, the goal and the match finishes drama there's just so many ways to do it like i think mm. back in some of the matches i've seen or or been after drama like like when that like when ireland beat germany one nil and the euro 2016 qualifiers germany were the, the world champions i think the last time we played them at home they beat us about five or six one we scored a goal in like the 60 odd minute i think and then the rest of the, the remaining third or so of the match was just like nail biting tension where you're just mm. thinking like oh fuck it this is too good to be true they're gonna score they're gonna score they're gonna score and it just kept going on and then as the like it got closer and closer to the final whistle it's like buzz around the stadium as everyone's thinking oh my god is it actually going to happen like hardly daring to sing because you're jinxing it you know and there isn't quite that dynamic here there isn't like one team that's a massive underdog against a huge team but i bring up the example to say that's a match that from a kind of you know you would look at it and you wouldn't think it's incredibly dramatic like one goal and that goal happens mm. in around the like two tours point of the match around the hour mark but the reality of it for everyone that was there was hugely dramatic mm. and i just think there are ways he could have done it that would have been dramatically satisfying without having to rely on this kind of cliched way of it that as as we just said kind of undercuts what he's trying to imply what you know is happening with this reform of football yeah and like see there's one of the major issues i have see one of the ways i think it could have worked a little bit better would be just if they had like a couple of matches in in the actual book like maybe three or so just a way again as a way of building tension when you have like you know oh like this is like a revenge match or something like that mm-hmm. but obviously I know what he's tr- I can see what he's trying to do here is like to kind of bring football into like the disc world in kind of the same way that he brought in the newspaper or like the bank or the postal service it is, it is very much in that vein of like bringing something modern into this fantasy world but the issue that I have in this book as opposed to like the likes of the truth, uh, the bank, or the par- or sorry, making money or uh, going postal is where in those books we can see the effects that those uh, those uh, modern uh, modern items like or whatever are, are, we can see the effect that they have in subs- yeah modern developments. Thank you. That was the word I was trying to say. We can see how, like how. Um, the effect that it has on subsequent books because mm-hmm. like as soon as like the the truth uh, comes out almost every book after that you see like a reference like oh yeah William DeWard has wrote something about it in the times like right that's relevant going postal uh, it's not as relevant but like it is still there and certainly obviously in making money because it launches from that making money I feel like uh, we haven't really seen much of it yet but I can absolutely see how it will play out in the future i think i think i remember uh snuff talks about it a little bit um but the problem i have here is unseen academicals i don't see how football is going to be relevant in subsequent books you know i don't see how it's how it how it adds to the disc world i just kind of thought this is something that i'm going to like satirize and it doesn't feel like a clean fit to me it just doesn't feel right <laughs> we we have we have very little books to go so in some ways it's kind of like you know we can't really expect it to be uh played mm. out much and obviously one of those books in snuff is um you know well away from from mike morpork down the country and, and of course and then the tiffany remaining two tiffany aching ones you have are away in longer i don't know i i could if you're say if, if we're talking about this on the time of publication when we have no idea how many are remaining mm. i could well imagine like like you have 
like say is veterinary kind of gets to about it in this when he's talking about like football as diplomacy and as a substitute for war which we also mm. saw joked about in Jingo mm. so you can imagine say the events of a watch book or like a, even if you wanted to do another William DeWard book or maybe even a Moist book maybe Moist becomes like you know heads up the, the Ankh-Morpork Park FA and mm. like he's given the task of like organizing leagues and or you know or whatever else um you could have say like like it has built like a a big tentpole set piece it's built around like a murder ank morpork are playing clatch say right like <laughs> and in you know in in the like in the stands someone's killed but then it turns out they're really important and you know they have to do this or there's a threat made to a star player and like you know vimes has to assign a watch to protect them or something uh, uh actually a funny possibility that suggests itself given that obviously like pratchett's an english writer and is drawn primarily from his experience of english football is uh the the english football manager's job is like you know routinely called the, the least desirable uh high profile job in, in england i think like famously graham taylor when he was managing england in the, the mid-90s joked that princess diana had rang him to thank uh thank him for for taking her off the front pages because he was the one get you know uh getting slated so much and i think it'll be fun if say you you get to the where uh, like a year or so in the chronology of the disc world down the line from this and you get to the stage where not only you have UU and Ankh-Morpork United, but you have international sides. So you have like an Ankh-Morpork team that's, you know, draws from the best of them. You have a Clatch team and an Uberval team. And like the Ankh-Morpork team, despite having all these good players, is just this disaster where like you have maybe a like they're getting bad results. The managers mock the press like the kind of uh, are, you know, are hounding them and so on. And Moist has to find the job of like, finding a new manager but like no one mm. wants to do it because it's it's such a kind of horrible job and he has to go around and navigate with it anyway to me at least like we don't really see what the implications of the organization of football is on the discord because there's only a handful of books left mm. but to me potentially if if pratchett was in the pink of health at this time and you know had years and years of writing left in him there are a lot of ways in which i think this could uh factored in to the, the background or even the the main plot of, of subsequent discord books but I, I would agree with you that there definitely is a problem with stakes in this book mm. like regardless of your uh, level of interest um in in the the sport or not like i think it's funny i, I think i said to you just so we finished up making money and we were talking about doing this and, and i said i had read it once I kind of had middling memories of it and had subsequently discovered it was one of the more, I suppose, like, um, not well thought of books, you know, like like people uh, didn't like it. And I, I've sort of, uh, this is a thing that's come up before here, and I, I think we talked about it a little bit with Mark Burroughs, but this idea of Pratchett's Alzheimer's creating a clear decline in the later books, right? Mm. And And in our past few, we've, like, we haven't slated these books by any means. We have found plenty of stuff to like in them, but uh, we have found plenty of stuff to like in them. But the likes of Todd and Making Money, we've definitely they've ended up lower on our ratings uh, than previous ones. So we are at least detecting a sense of decline in our mm. opinion. But to me, like, and look, I'm no doctor. I, I I'm Pratchett had a particularly rare form of Alzheimer's, so maybe someone could say, oh, there are clearly signs of it here, there, and there. But to me, this. Like this decline, and particularly in this book, seems to me like less to do with any deterioration of cognitive faculties, and more just to do with like Pratchett's 
30 odd books into this really successful series mm. maybe he's getting a bit tired and also maybe he's at the stage where editors just can't really tell him no anymore so they don't push him on rewrites or kind of to develop things and, and there's a sense the lack of stakes to me comes from like you have characters who embody is probably too strong a word, but who who come to represent over the course of the books ideas Pratchett agrees with. You know, mm, whether it's like mm. the likes of Glenda and Trev realizing that the kind of uh, social codes that they've built their life along are actually keeping them down. Whether it's Mister Nutt finding that he ha- that he has self worth that is inherent to him and isn't dependent on other other people. So. To tell the story of those journeys, you need those viewpoints to be challenged. And it's as if, because Pratchett obviously agrees with those viewpoints, he just doesn't really have the passion or enthusiasm about writing the challenges in any way that feels very substantial or significant. Mm. You know what I mean? So they're they're not really pushed. So like we, we talked before that a Discworld villains have to pose a, a material and ideological threat. Mm. And I suppose Andy is the villain here, right? And he initially maybe poses a material threat to Trev, at least, because it's clear he's just like cutthroat hooligan. Yeah. Uh, but very summarily, we see Nut could tear him in two. Like, yeah, even before yeah. that scene at the end with the head, he, you know, he has his handshake and he crushes his hand. So then that's his, his, his material threat gone. And ideologically, it's funny. I, so I made this note here, right? Where I was about like 300 odd pages in, and I said, um, Ideologically speaking, he, meaning Andy, opposes the modernization of football, but it's far from evident that he can do anything about it. And then I have another point just saying, it might be better if we got a sense that Andy had a following in opposing modernization, and it potentially could stymie veterinary's plans through the allure of stubborn tradition and toxic masculine charisma. Maybe it could culminate in a compromise rules match of sorts between Andy's side and the new football of the university, resulting in a watershed moment a la Scotland's Wembley Wizards, the Hungarians in 1953, or Netherlands hammering Spain in 2014. And then below that, I've just added, this actually ends up happening, but only in the last hundred pages. Needed more build on the resistance to new football. And, like, that's that's a thing, right? Is that, like, you you have characters um, like Trev and particularly Glenda thinking about like how veterinary has invested in this new modernization reform of football can he pull it off and what it will mean if he can't but it's very nebulous like it's very like so yeah will this result in some like massive uprising or something will this be like like famously you had um the byzantine empire was almost brought down by like essentially hooligan riots over chariot races so it's just going to be something like that where veterinary is potentially his reach is, is going further down his grasp in the sense of like he's trying to reform something he shouldn't touch and he's gonna uh like open a pandora's box of rioting and discontent from the masses led by the likes of andy but again for one that's something that really only comes into play towards the end it's very nebulous and it's only towards the end that like obviously we see we see that the football commands this huge interest from most of the normal people in like more working classes. But we see that, but then we see the captains show up to veterinary's banquet. They're very kind of nervous and a bit defensive at first. Then they show up, get pissed, have a good time, and they sign off on it. So we kind of think, okay, like he's got the say-so of the big figures in the, the masses. And then suddenly, very late on, we have this introduction of these people, like, uh, I can't remember the, the woman's name, Mother or Mrs. So-and-so, the one oh, who gives yeah. the Poison Banana to Librarian, whore, Andy, people like that. And there's this sudden sense of, like, 
oh, actually, there's people who are really against this and it mightn't pull off. And it just comes too late for us to get invested yeah. in it, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and I, I just think there's there's something there you could have built up in that opposition, and that's what the match is to build around. And we kind of see it playing out when, like, the tactics of UU, like, pay off, where, you know, they do... It's a very simple thing, but it's actually, funnily enough, going back to the Ireland thing, it's, it's like what is still being played out now, where it's like, yeah, you know, you have certain people, like, having heart attacks about, like, central defenders of, of the Ireland team trying to play the ball up the field. But it's like, well, you do... They're like, oh, he's a defender. He should just boot it away. But it's like, you do that because then you draw the opposition to you. That opens up space behind them. You hit the ball over the top or a ball through. You run down the other end of the field and score. We get a very simple version of that here where, where they pass it back to the goalie. Everyone rushes the goalie, like, kind of school by football stuff. And the librarian just punts it up. Macarano runs on and is true and goal and he scores. And then we get, like... Andy using his, I know, for tactics, for want of a better word of all, like the really cynical fouling and stuff like that mm. playing out. So you do have that clash of, like, ideologies about the game, about what it should represent, about who it's for, but it's, I know, the stakes aren't well established enough. Like, we, we don't get a sense that if this goes wrong, it could bring down UU and veterinary and lead to the kind of, like, Andes of this world stamping down on on you know change and uh whatever else i do think um just going back to what you were saying about how the i feel like decline is a strong word but definitely like there is like um the quality of the books at this point you can see it like very slowly declining like again because i feel like oh we always have to qualify this that like even a bad terry pratchett book is still a good book so um but I do agree with you that I do, I wouldn't I wouldn't attribute this to um, his diagnosis whatsoever because I feel like these would be a lot messier if that was the case. Um, I think you are right that it is just a case of um, maybe he doesn't have the enthusiasm and surely enough I think yeah the editors that because I feel like if the editors had their way if they could just like look at this properly they could say there's a few threads here that aren't really tied up that well and. Yeah, it's just I I I just say it's completely coincidental. And like again, we've yet to, I I think I recall um I think it was I think I think I think you said that the later Tiffany Aching books were um particularly good. I haven't read I I only read the uh I've only read the ones that we've read so far. I haven't read yeah, anything Yeah, yeah, me on. too. I'm, I'm looking forward to them, but but apparently they they have a yeah, quite quite a reputation. Yeah, so I'm sure uh, like I, so, I think I think Mark said like Shower Midnight is one of his favorite discord books overall. So mm. it certainly uh speaks highly of it. Mm. Uh, you see it too in, in something you referred to earlier when you said like for a while it seems like the match is going to be between Brazenick mm. and UU, which again just feels like messy and in need of editing. You're you're lent that impression early on. But the thing about that is the stakes are kind of nerfed there as well where so you have Veterinary is talking to Rick Cully and the Dean well, Henry when mm. they're disagreeing at that feast, right? Yeah. And like contrast it say with Jingo which again is, is quite a messy book you know one which has its strengths but has significant flaws right in Jingo you have Veterinary kind of finding this toured way out of a war with, with his yeah. plan he you know surrenders Lesh because he knows it's going to sink you also have to, to tie in there of, of football being substituted for a war when uh, Carrot's able to kind of organise the, the armies into a football match oh, yeah. but that that's the climax of Jingo right at that point we've seen like Vimes is kind of 
desperately trying, but out of his depth in trying to stop this war. And it seems like it's going to happen. And then Veterinary shows up and is able to, based on what's been hinted at from the stuff we saw earlier when he's in the... Um, the, the boat and they go up and they, they, go, they go under Leshp and so on so it builds up to that whereas just in the middle of the this book Veterinary notes approvingly about how wizardry's moving past the kind of the point of uh, sorcery style conflict and football offers a bloodless outlet for these kind of international or cross institutional as, as we might say with, with Brazenek and, and UU disputes and, and he suggests about putting the hat on the line in the match yeah and in Jingo, that kind of diplomatic solution is like the book's climax. Like it, it halts, you know, stopping that conflict that was spiraling out of control is what we're building to. Here, it just happens in the middle of it. But also, we get the impression, we never really get the impression that as testy as Henry and Ridcully are being with one another, that they are going to come to blows or rather come to mm. tossing spells at, at each other. So there's no real stakes tension. And then even you have Veterinary kind of explaining like like how to recully about like, oh, well, who's a matter? What's a matter who has the hat? So mm. for a while I was thinking that we're going to play a match for the hat, but it doesn't really matter. We've already been told that this isn't something we as readers should worry about. And we can only presume that like at that stage, like, part of Rid Cully's development in this book will be seeing past symbols like that and, and towards kind mm. of things that are more meaningful in in what makes UU important. And then in the end, obviously, we don't even get it. The Dean becomes a, a somewhat, like, overwhelmed but ultimately fair referee in, in mm. uh, the match. So, yeah, it's 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 very strange. But mm. even that plotline that doesn't get carried off, the, the stakes are kind of taken out of it. It's sort of defanged quite early on. I think, like, it, it all kind of, um, it's all kind of represented, like, on the page as well, because, like, you know, everybody is literally coming into the stadium or wherever it is that the match is taking place to watch, and, uh, like, Vimes comes in at one point and says, I will not step onto this pitch to intervene. It's like, oh, well, that's something. But, like, you do get the sense that if it spills out onto the streets, then obviously he'll be there to lock it down. But on top of that, like the entire pitch is kind of um, like surrounded by this magical barrier as well to ensure no magic. So like, it's like all the drama is contained to this like tiny area, and like none of it is really relevant. You know, I don't get the sense yeah. that like anything matters. That take like the, even if like the worst were to happen and like you know they get start killing people like. I just, I, I guess I just don't really care, like, you know? <laughs> yeah, the, the only threat at the end is a very material one to our protagonists of, like, is Andy going to take advantage of the magical field and the lack of intervention from the watch to, like, kill Nut or Trev? Which, you know, we care enough about those characters at yeah. the time to worry about it. Again, the, the actual physical threat of Andy has already been, like, diminished by Nut mm. kind of overwhelming him earlier. But also it's like, at that stage, this is the longest Discworld book, and you built into it, and you, you kind of alluded to all of these other quite interesting currents about what the reform of football represents, and you mm. know about working class society and culture and, and consciousness and so on. So for all of that to just come down to an event where the stakes are just will our heroes be hurt or die or not mm. feels much less than it should be. It feels like you know we should have built. Yeah, we care about these people. We don't see them die, but we should build for something bigger than just their life being on the line at the yeah end. they should represent something and like they just don't so like it's uh yeah it's unfortunate um just to i feel like we might have explored quite a lot of that now but i just want to 
delve a little bit into like some of the side parts like the whole world of fashion in uh you know the disc world that's something turn to the left that's not something like we've seen i'm trying to think have we it it might have popped up like briefly in other books but if it did i don't remember it at all i don't know is there is there anything really to say about that i feel like it's kind of shallow in this book like i feel like it's not really explored to any great extent like not not don't want to like you know be down on it or anything like it's fine for what it is it's entertaining to read like the how how the fashion show is going and everything especially like with glenda getting drunk on sherry but i don't think there's much to it um i i think there's there's a little to it i definitely think it is a bit undercooked but um uh, you know there is one odd part where uh when they get juliet in to do it i think pepe or madame sharon makes some reference to her like not being much taller than a dwarf and i was thinking like hang on like how I don't think we've ever got a height measurement on Discworld dwarves, but I always assumed like they're what like like four feet tall, like four and a half feet tall maybe at most. So I was like, how small is she? And it just maybe just like my bias and preconception, but just when she's described as such a stunningly beautiful woman, you just kind of have this you know yeah. you you kind of match her up, but like okay, she's conventional model hot, so she's mm. this blonde statuesque tin you know uh curves in all the right places stunner so suddenly kind of reframing that picture of oh she's actually quite petite and small presumably really petite if she can mm. pass for a, a dwarf <laughs> felt like an odd fit but uh, that's a minor thing i do think there is something interesting and it's a kind of parallel of like really broadly speaking traditionally like it's like fashion's a feminine pursuit and football's a masculine pursuit mm. now that isn't always nor should it be the case uh in in reality but that's kind of how they're perceived and they're both often particularly more so i would say in fashion but uh, personally speaking i I think football as well as uh, an academic who part of my research and study goes into football i see a lot of this where like the importance of it is kind of often like dismissed by people who aren't into it they're like cultural importance and yeah and and it's perceived as being shallower than it is and that's certainly true of fashion as well like i'm you know i mean it's not a subject that that is a uh, one that hugely interests me but i know the kind of the level of cultural importance it has and yet it's so often kind of dismissed as just like ah oh, these idiots just parading around in clothes because they can't get a real job and they just have to look pretty and you know oh, these kind of like designers sort of up their own arse coming up with these things that normal people will never wear when actually like you know what goes on in, in kind of high circles of fashion is hugely influential for our culture as it percolates down as in what people wear how they visually represent themselves and we see that here with the with a development we've seen play out over a lot of books, which is the kind of the level to which female dwarves can express their femininity while mm. still feeling properly dwarvish and not just feeling like they're kind of, I don't know, doing a drag act of, of like human women. Mm. Um, so like the micro male is this kind of new development in that, in that it's like a, a, a feminine, like accoutrement, but it's it's very dwarvish as well. So I think there's something interesting there in like it's particularly with with Glenda's attitude to it early on where she's kind of like, you know, she literally uses that thing of, oh, she has a real job in the mm. kitchens. Like, why should she want <laughs> yeah. to do this? Or, you know, I like I can't believe all this. And not that there isn't uh, like stuff to be skewered or critiqued or satirized about the fashion industry. There's plenty. And, and he does a little of it here. But I do think it's interesting to explore that attitude of kind of deconstructing this kind of shallow dismissal of it where it's like oh this actually mm. is 
more more important than than you think. I do think it's kind of undercooked in that we just we do get that initial scene, and then uh, again, well, as I said, we get that quite interesting scene where where Juliet has just consigned herself to like, no, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. She sort of internalized this borrow a Marxist term, false con- false consciousness. Of you know, like I shouldn't get ideas above my station, and and Glenda's sort of horrified at what she's done. But other than that, then it's kind of Juliet is sort of like on the run from the whole fashion thing until the end when it comes to the four again. Yeah. So it does feel sort of um a bit undercooked in how it's plotted out. But I think there's some interesting ideas being discussed and and uh, that our attention is being pulled towards in, in those scenes. Yeah, what one the direction I thought it was going to go in at first was going to be something along the lines of cultural appropriation. In that, like, uh, that did occur to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, like she's a human woman, but she's the best dwarf model. Yeah. Then, then, then presumably you have, like, like in the same way that you have these arguments. Again, this isn't something I want to wade too far into because I, I, again, fashion isn't an area I know a lot about. But so the arguments about like, like body size and and shape and so on in fashion mm. shows, this idea of you're presenting an uh, ideal that doesn't match a lot of women or you know men in some cases, and that you should be more diverse and the kind of shapes and, and physical makes up uh, makeup of people you use so that there isn't this narrow association of one type of thing with what constitutes beauty or desirability and i di- it did come up to me that i was like oh so i suppose we're to take that like they all see the micro male and they love that but they're also kind of developing this idea of like like the perfect super mm. hot dwarf is this human woman with a fake beard on yeah but it doesn't really go in any direction no. i mean like the only time like uh, well, micro male itself. The only the next time it makes an appearance, and it's not even visible because it's like it's a pair, it's a set of underwear basically. So like, yeah, Back to the Future Three reference. Yeah, what? You know, Back to the Future Three. Marty McFly has to a uh, bit of steel. It's like a bulletproof vest. Oh, Biff shoots him, God! And he hops back up and he punches him, and he gets he breaks his hand punching the steel. Oh God! Do you know it's been so long since I've seen that movie? I I, I didn't remember that at all. <laughs> well, shame on you! You shame should never on... go more than six months without watching Back to the Future Three for the good of your health. I'll make a note of that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, that's all I can really think of. There, I'll just have a quick look through my notes. Is there is there anything else that like jumped out um, at you? There's one sort of bigger thing I want to talk about. Just a couple of minor uh, quibbles. Um, just, just again, uh, I, as I said, I, I was conscious of my, my perhaps predisposition to be defensive over like, oh, this is something I really love, and Pratchett doesn't, but he's writing about it, so it's like, oh, you're getting our thing wrong, um, and I, I was conscious to kind of suppress that and just be like, oh, it's very interesting to have an outsider perspective, and he does offer, as we've discussed, a lot of interesting perspectives on it. There are one or two things that he gets wrong that just really jumped out to me, like the the number, the numbering, like like Trev is number four. And uh, it presumably gives Daz score four goals, but like in football, Trishy number four is a defensive player's number. Like you have like either centre back or the defensive midfielder would be number four. Like if he's a striker, he should be number nine or ten, possibly number number eight. Uh, and Andy is number one. Like usually only goalkeepers are number one. Yeah, I um, think I, that that rang wrong for me. I wasn't sure why, but I was like, that doesn't seem right for some reason. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think one exception was I think in Argentina in the um, was it the eighty two World Cup? They had such arguments about like 
because certain numbers and it's something I don't want to bore our listeners with, but then they they develop a kind of cultural cachet around them of you know famous number tens, number sevens, and so on. So then you can have people who are like the number ten at their club, and then they meet up for the international, and you can only give the number to one player. Mm. So to get bypass these arguments in Argentina, and I think it was the Spain '82 World Cup, they just gave out the numbers in alphabetical order. So Ozzy Ardiles, who was a midfielder, had the number one, but that uh. was seen as this really weird novelty at the time. It was like. <laughs> You know, almost like like a pub quiz trivia, like like what outfield player were the number one at the World Cup. The other thing is when they make the perfect ball through using the uh, the cabinet of curiosity that we saw in making money. Yeah, um, I I quite like the way they've done that. Like where like the way think, like you it can make a temporary copy, but they they have it for enough time to, to be able to get someone to copy it to make a real one. Mm. But the ball goes glowing, which to me sounded like like a ping pong ball. You know, like like uh or, or like what what are those in? I think. They, they call them in the US like super balls like like just a kind of handheld bouncy ball you would have to play with as as a oh, kid like yeah, the sound yeah. they would make if you whereas like to me the like quintessential sound of a perfect football is like like a kind of satisfying thump yeah like, you know as you, when it's just pumped up enough that like you're not breaking your foot on it but they can travel like you get this lovely like like kind of like solid thump. I was kind of thinking of do you know like um, those kind of cheap footballs you get when you're a kid like they're kind of like bright red or blue or something yeah, like yeah. not the leather ones because like I was kind of thinking of those because they kind of make a glowing sound when you hit them off the floor but yeah, um, and they're really light like that. yeah yeah it, it does be funny because when you're a kid you're you know kicking them around and you, you, you ever try to play one as an adult it's like you you know you trying to send flying everywhere yeah <laughs> it's all over across the road it's, or something that was actually that is one thing again just a very small thing on this I really liked uh, how the experiment that Ridicully does where he just tosses the ball into the hallway just to see if people start yeah, kicking yeah. it and like and that is something that is just like true cause again I have no interest in football but if someone kicks a ball to me I'm definitely going to kick it around a little bit like just it doesn't matter if I'm terrible at it it's just what you do when someone kicks a ball at you you know so yeah only the other the other day I was going for a walk at a park with a friend and we just saw like it was a ball just abandoned in the middle of a in the middle of a pitch so I just like hang on a sec ran up to it and just like punted it over the bar yeah. <laughs> I was like okay I just really wanted to do that <laughs> I love the scene too with um, Veterinary and Drumnot where Drumnot is so straight laced like he's like Veterinary's like what would you do if you saw a ball in the street thinking like anyone to kick it and Drumnot's like oh I presume someone was playing a trick on me or something you know? <laughs> yeah. even Veterinary is so kind of like icy and passionless can't like can't get his head around yeah. uh, this way of thinking um, just while we're on Veterinary too that speech he makes about seeing like the otter bring back the dead creature to its pups and uh, like if there is a creator we need to be his moral superior is like oh, a yeah. very uh, kind of like it's like a weird sort of it's almost Nietzschean where, where it's like you know like God is dead there's no inherent good in mm. the world but it's up to us to be the inherent good yeah that's what true strength is obviously like you know, bowdlerized, bastardized versions of Nietzsche's philosophy end up being used by by Nazis and neo Nazis. But like, in, in its kind of at its basis, his is uh, like like Nietzscheanism is sort of a, the Nietzschean Superman is kind of opposed to that because it's about like true strength and being sort of imposing a morality where there is none, rather than using the lack of morality to do whatever the, what you want. Mm. And that's kind of what Veterinary is talking about in like having this very bleak view of the world and yet still being committed to making it a better place. Yeah. I, I, just thought, I thought it's a really interesting insight into his character because it's at once a view that like broadly we can kind of see why it 
motivates him to do things we largely agree with in like you know when he's helping characters we like or whatever or stopping wars but is is like developed through a thought process that most of us would find very cold and alien and kind mm. of chilling um so yeah yeah really like that bit yeah i have to say veterinary in general in this but with the exception of that the moment where he's uh talking to Ridley and like the old uh, Dean that with that that part I wasn't really a fan of but generally speaking like I thought uh, he's he's still very well written because I feel like usually there's a bit of a decline in the way some characters are represented when they're in so many books consistently like you you know you kind of feel like the characters either going to get boring or they're going to start like changing in a way that's not consistent with their personality in order to remain relevant or interesting and veterinary somehow has managed to like avoid both of those so like he's still an interesting character but he's still very true to like what made him interesting in the first place like i especially like um <laughs> veterinary drunk which oh yeah is, which is nothing ex- crossword a bit slower yeah that's it like um, one thing I found really interesting now, I'm not sure if there's much to actually there probably is something to this now like the psychology behind it but um, the idea of like your enemies always being really close to home and like uh, you know all the like like the Dolly sisters and Dimwell are really close to each other and that's why like they're such like strong rivals and uh, it's that brought me right back to I remember when I was a kid and like just the next town over in every respect was our enemy just because they were the next town over like I think I remember one time like um, uh, there was a friend like she was from Austria and she was like she was in Gori for like two years or something and um, one day she asked us like why do you hate Arklo so much and it was like oh well sorry if anyone from Arklo is listening <laughs> but like I didn't really have an answer it's just because like because they're not gory obviously it's <laughs> yeah. like literally the only reasoning behind it like there's because you can't like you can't kindle that passion of like you know for for want of a better word hatred or like we can't do that with someone who's too far away because you don't know them well enough so it has to be someone yeah, close to yeah, home so true yeah and i think, mean you, you you see it played out too with, uh, with with football where it's like you have obviously you know fans to say two teams in the same city like like liverpool everton man united's uh Man City, like Shelbourne, Shamrock Rovers, Bohemians, uh, St. Pat's, like all not liking one another. But then when it comes to the national team, where you'll have players from each of those clubs yeah. playing alongside one another and they're representing the overall entity of like England or Ireland, it's suddenly like, oh yeah. Like, yeah, it's all of us in together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these players you would have booed. Uh, like normally, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very strange. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's two things we haven't touched on here, I suppose. Though. Um, one is sort of brief, but this is. Uh, one of the more uh, prominent depictions of, of homosexuality we get in this world mm. uh, with well Pepe's kind of ambiguous he's certainly very camp in his presentation mm. and he has a, an ambiguous relationship with Madame Sharon uh, who being a dwarf or gender is itself very ambiguous yeah but he, I suppose he's quite I suppose like coded as gay for want of a better term you know like the way he's presented as if like he like a you know, flamboyant gay fashionista. Mm. Um, then we have the the scene where um, Ponder reveals to Reed Cully that uh, Bengo Macarana is is gay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When he talks about like uh, was it an annoyed annoyed wife right, <laughs> after the the affair rather than mm. annoyed husband. I wonder if um, Pepe might actually be considered. You could probably look at him as a pansexual as opposed to a homosexual, though. Yeah, because I mean, as it's it's the doors open certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like. I'm not sure if like much is actually done with it, except for it's kind of like the the tired tired old drum roll of like you know uh, people like 
queer sexualities have a tough time of it growing up like in you know look, he, they, he talks about that um growing up in the neighborhood and having an interest in the likes of fashions and fabrics was resulted in him having a pretty tough time of it like it's still as relevant now as it ever was but like it's not particularly original so like i don't know if there's much really to say about it except it's there so yeah, he, he does feel a bit too like um I don't know if uh, queer theorists have developed a term for this, but like, like the gay or, or let's just say LGBT plus because I said his sexuality is kind of ambiguous mm. equivalent of the magical Negro trope. You, yeah, you know, yeah. you have like like a black character, but they're and they're presented as very wise and almost omnicapable, but their purpose is just kind of to dispense wisdom and help mm. out the white characters, and and he's sort of like that, like where he. I mean, his role to do with Juliet and Glenda kind of makes a lot of sense when he's this, you know, he's kind of presenting the opportunity to get into the fashion world and, and helping them get used to it. But like when he pops back up and he gives Trev the micromail, I mean, he even lampshades that he describes himself as being like a fairy godmother, like this. Yeah, yeah. There to help out. And then at the end, when he beats up Andy, which again, like it, it kind of felt to me like, I sort of like I've made the complaint before about like Willikins Vimes's butler where it's you know okay it's not impossible that you have this character be a posh butler and a really tough vicious fighter and it's not impossible that you have this character be a you know like um, fashionista and a really tough vicious fighter but we need to see more connective tissue there than yeah. just the mention of oh yeah I grew up in a rough area like and and that kind of just gives them this ability to uh, like dispense absolute like smackdowns when when mm. they have to 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 these other characters. Like, even even the bit about him beating up Andy at the end, it's just so. It, it, it kind of reminded me of the complaint I had in um, Carpe Juggalum, where we just see the villains bested over and over again in different mm. ways towards the end. It's like, yeah, it's kind of satisfying, particularly if you have had experiences with like people like Andy, these kind of like toxically masculine hooligans. Mm. But it's also like at, at that point we've seen him beaten three ways from sunday you know yeah do we need this like and i think i feel like that's uh the spiritual threat that andy's supposed to represent i think this is the only place that we really get that and it's kind of tied into the narrative structure in a very strange way because like narratively the whole idea is that like you know he's getting on to andy because like he wants to protect um Trev and Juliet's relationship in order to keep the whole um, modeling thing going but it just it just feels like I had a hard time growing up and you basically represent the people who gave me a hard time so hence Smackdown commence you know so yeah. it, it's it felt very hackneyed certainly satisfying in a certain way and I think it is saved by like uh, the neat little touch of like him throwing the lemon and him wiping it into his because that's just like a <laughs> delicious yeah it. it's just like such an evil little thing to throw in there that's almost like you'd almost forget like any issues you'd have with it but it's still like how it's connected to the whole thing is uh, yeah it's a bit, uh, bit weird and I'm sure there's people who probably make a fair argument that the business of like like Rid Cully just kind of openly accepting uh, Macarana's homosexuality. Admittedly, we haven't really had, you know, much about sexual mores in the disc in general, certainly, well, human sexual mores. But Rid Cully sort of coded as this, you know, old school kind of macho man stock, you know, character. So, so it's sort of subverting expectations that he's like, ah, there's not enough love in the world. But it, it kind of worked for me. Like, I just found it really sweet. You know, like, like it, it's like someone coming out to their grandparent or something and just being 
completely accepted. Like, and, and because Macarana, like, again, you can make the comparison of Macarana being this Mary Sueish character. He's like incredibly intelligent, uh, renowned academically, mm. like just apparently like can, can pick up any man he wants. Uh, and it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> supremely talented footballer, but because he's such a, like tertiary side character all of that just works for me it just feels colorful i love that <laughs> some commitment to the joke of he him, he insists the crowd chant all his qualifications uh, and you have literally a page of all of them like i, I didn't read through that page obviously but I yeah. just thought, for all the complaints we would have of pratchett perhaps reaching this stage where he has more freedom from editors and can get more indulgent i kind of thought like okay well there, there is a time where I think fair play to him for pushing the envelope on that, where he's just saying, we're just going to have one page that's just this, this list. But look, you don't have to read it, you know? You yeah, just get the yeah. idea and skip over it. It isn't cumbersome. It, it's just, I, I just found it very funny. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I mean, I, I always have a feeling like when I... This is something I remember feeling, and it was an issue I had when I was reading Lord of the Rings back in the day as well. But whenever you have like a full song in Elvish, I'm like, what the hell was the point? Because I'm not going to read all this. But like then I feel like if I don't read it, maybe I'm missing something. So that it's that weird sense that it gives me that like I either have to read this and presumably be bored or skip through it and feel like I'm missing something. So it's I it's don't n- think you'd be missing too much to skip through that pr- beyond pr- noting the <laughs> voluminous amount of qualifications he has. You know, one part of the book that I really liked is when they're bringing Nut back from wherever it is he ran off to, and they have this discussion on the way back to Ankh-Morpork about like what it is, uh, what 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 does worth mean? What does it mean to like have worth? And they're talking about this whole idea of like, well, I think Nut's answer is um, it's something it's like you, you leave the world a better place than when you entered it. Yeah, and. Uh, one of the one of the other people in the uh, in the cart, they say, "What about blind people, for example?" Which is, I, I I like the direction that he's taking with that, like kind of like drawing attention to the idea that like you know, um, people with physical disabilities or whatever, like are in in any any kind of disabilities, like you know they they have worth as well. It I feel like it might be a little bit clumsy though, like saying like, um, "Oh, what about blind people?" As if like in some very blasé way it's saying like someone thinks that like oh a blind person someone might think they don't have worth you know like it's yeah i i see what you mean like like on the one hand it's such a crass view to have like like well crass morally repugnant to suggest mm. anyone like with, with disabilities like lacks worth or, or value <laughs> actually something we're seeing played out with, with covid19 of, of when you mm. see people suggesting like well, who are we really trying to protect with all of these regulations? When I say crass, uh, that probably seems like a small. I mean crass as as a, like a form of argument of like you know kind of. Mm. Well, what about like this person with like intellectual disabilities that needs care? Or <laughs> what have they ever done for anyone else? You know, it's, yeah. it's such such a crass way of saying it that like it's not like you need to commit a lot to dismissing that viewpoint. But I kind mm. of feel like if you do want to make a thing of dismissing it it would probably be more interesting to just explore in nuanced ways the forms of worth and value uh, disabled people of whatever form of disability they have form for themselves rather than just kind of bring it up and dismiss it in a sentence. Like, it's, it's an odd thing. Like, on the one hand, yeah, it's such a horrible, stupid, crass criticism that, like, why bother deal with it? On the other hand, if you're going to do it at all, because for all its crassness, it is a... a a going concern in mm. society in general and something like people with disabilities have to have to wrestle with a lot 
if you're going to do it at all, then maybe like do it with more time and, and depth than just kind of bring it up and saying, oh, no, it's Grant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just a small thing. Look, I, li- I like the direction of the conversation. Obviously, like, the whole point of that conversation is just draw attention that people who have disabilities or who might be viewed as, like, not being contributing to society do have worth. And, like, I'm glad that that's the approach he takes. It's just uh, the method of it, not, not bad by any means. It's just a little clumsy. That's the only thing. But it's still, again, I'm more in favor of it than against it, the way it's done. So that was all I want to throw on there. And I think that's that's probably my, my last note that I have here, really, of any worth. Yeah, so I, I just one more thing I wanted to touch on, and it goes back to the class thing, which I, I said I liked his exploration of kind of false consciousness of this idea of, um, and it's something we talked about before with like, well, we would say with, with gender conventions and, and societal structures in making money with the Deer Tree Wagon stuff, mm-hmm. and this idea of the oppressed group contributing to their own oppression by buying into it and then reproducing and producing you know, various like cultural texts and, and, and things they say in conversations that keep those structures in place, even when those structures are, are impeding or, or harming them. And I like the way that's explored here, where like Glenda and Trev kind of thinking outside of like, like why, why have I always like this and how is it serving me in general? But I think where it really falls down is that like you have that vivid metaphor of the crab bucket. Oh, yeah with Verity Push Pram where she tells about like how the crabs will just pull one another back in so that you can you can keep them captive without putting a top on the bucket like they will just they'll sort of a self-policing prison as as it were and Glenda obviously kind of disresounds with her as regards to the, the kind of life she's leading like in a way that she's just tried to constrain Juliet from getting out of that mm. reflexively you know without without thinking about it at all but I think like what what goes without what goes unsaid is that like to to take the crab bucket metaphor further, someone has put those crabs in the bucket, mm. and if they did escape, someone would put them back in and try to put them back in, right? Yeah. Whereas we don't really get that impression with Ankh-Morpork Park society here. Like, there's this sense that like mm. the the position that the working classes have built for themselves, like they have just constructed it and they police it, and uh, the upper classes just look on in bemusement like like they don't have any interest in in maintaining this you know like the ruling classes like like the likes of Ednari, Riculli, they're portrayed as at worst naive and patronizing mm. and and at best tolerant and encouraging you know there's no sense of like them wanting to keep the working class in place there's no sense of them even like i mean look this a complicated issue and we're already two and a half hours in so I don't want to dwell on this point too much but I, I, I don't mean to say where you like they're not some you know cabal who's taught this out where they're like sitting in smoke filled rooms and saying like oh the working classes are you know getting too class conscious we need to snap them back down like it wouldn't be a reaction like that but it might be a reaction of just they have gotten so used to this system that places them on top that when they see a character like Glenda or Trev speaking out, they're kind of alarmed and threatened without mm. really being able to articulate why. But we don't get that at all. We just get it like the only figures who attempt to perform the role of putting the crabs back in the crab bucket once they've had this moment of class consciousness are people like Sneems and Mrs. Waitlow and to some extent Glenda herself, like people oppressed people who have grown comfortable in and attached to their oppression rather than 
seeing oppressors themselves due to pushing down. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It, it kind of it, it does leave it a bit toothless as a critique of class society. And mm. look, maybe some people are here to snow be like, "Oh, why are you bringing this Marxist theory into it?" But it's like. He like he's dealing with this. Stuff yeah, he, like, he's like, already put the metaphor out there, so you have to kind of follow yeah, it through exactly. to make it work. Yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of what he does with it is very interesting, but it's mm. just, it's, it's a big miss. And what's weird about it is that we do get depictions throughout it of how awful life in Warburg is for a lot of people. Yeah. Like there's mentions about housing shortages. It's why the streets are so crowded. We have like drug problems that troll like Harper's name who works with them in the vats. Oh you yeah, know, and he's just permanently like like frazzled out of his head from his drug intake we have the, the fact that like the casual violence that happens in the shove in these early folk football matches has been tolerated by the authorities so long as it doesn't damage property and property owners mm-hmm. we have a watch that is, has this very shaky distrustful relationship with the working classes that we see very well in a scene with trev and angua who like just instinctively distrusts him and suspect that he must have some part of playing this so we get a lot of reason to suspect that like Hank Morfork it isn't a dystopia by any means mm. but it has plenty wrong with it and plenty wrong particularly for the people on the bottom rungs of society and yet we're presented with a ruling class that is dictating that society who are just all largely like you know lovable tolerant maybe they're a bit early fairly and removed from from what actually goes on with working class people but if they knew about it they'd you know they'd help out yeah 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 like we don't even get the the, the kind of the, the lord rusts and the, the like who were previously like complained about trolls and dwarves entering the city and things changing and so on we don't get any of that here and it just to me it while there's a lot going on interesting going on in his depiction of, of class consciousness it really is is a big miss, like a big point against it. It kind of you know renders it sort of toothless. But yeah, yeah, that's that's for what it's worth. I, I throw that out there, and uh, I suppose we we can get to to ranking this thing now. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's have a look. So I'd imagine we're probably going to put this up against something like the Moist books or the Truth because it's kind of kind of in the same kind of it or do you think maybe like the wizard book? no no i think i think that's a very good comparison while obviously the cast of characters is different we have the wizards and things like that there there is um that same sense of like development of like Park society that, that mm. is similar to moist so personally i'd be looking more down at making money than i would up at, at the truth or, or going postal yeah i'd be the same all right um I'm just going to look one above, if that's okay, because that, that making money is going to be a tricky comparison. Would you say this is better or worse than The Light Fantastic? I'd, I'd say worse, right? And it always comes back to that thing of, like, this book is clearly trying to do more than The Light yeah. Fantastic. And do you value something that tries to do more and fails, rather than something that tries to do less and succeed? Does le- just something that is doing less than succeeding. Um, any case, but I, I do think Light Fantastic is a bit underrated in terms of what it like while just telling this fantasy romp actually has interesting commentary mm. on on deeper issues in cohen about aging and heroism the kind of the, the like the cult like thing we see with the star people developing and you know like like how that's being dealt with Rincewind's identity as a wizard and his sort of conflicts over that which again like he's a really well played out character mm. over the course of those first two books and unfortunately gets gets sort of thinner and, and shallower as as, uh, as the books go on but i think in that we get we get really interesting issues from so for me this this would go below it yeah i'm trying to think like so 
this book in particular, I'm trying to think like what it actually does for me. Like so, it it tries to do a lot of things, but in many ways, I think it falls short. Like I'm, I'm not really a big fan of like Nut's story. I like his like relationships and like the same with um, uh, uh sorry, Tre- Trev and Juliet's relationship, but mm-hmm. they have their own issues. Um, the overall plot of this, I'm personally very dissatisfied with I, I just wasn't a fan of it whatsoever but by the same token what I do like about this is like the commentary it has on like just classism and stuff I think is pretty strong so I think yeah Making Money probably be the best comparison because they're very similar books in those ways that like Making Money was kind of dissatisfying for different reasons in that it was more of a retread um, like the structure was probably better but it was because it was so similar if it was kind of less interesting. Well, I'll tell you, go below making money and look at soul music, right? Because one thing I found coming from this book is that we, we've often criticized the standalone books for having like flat characters, you know, like hmm. Victor and, and Ginger and, and Tepic and, and so on, even when we've loved other aspects of those books. And this kind of did make me reconsider that criticism where I was thinking, well, here he has quite, you know, relatively nuanced characters that he spends a lot of time dealing with in... It, I mean, it's sort of a standalone. We have recurring characters like the Wizards and, and Veterinary, but but ultimately the, the bulk of it is on, you know, Nuss, Trev, Glenda, Juliet, who, who we've never met before. And I did think, I was like, you know, actually, was it... Like... When when you're trying to explore this big issue and its implications, like, like we saw in moving pictures, in pyramids, in, um, in, in the truth, like, is it, do you have room to try and do nuanced character arcs as well? Mm. You know, like, uh, I mean, I'm being a little hard on it, like, stuff like the truth there, Sakurisa and, and William are decent of characters, but here, like, we do get filled out characters, we also get this, like, book that's trying to deal with this massive concept and all the the attendant teams and ideas in in football and what it represents mm. with a great line he uses Shredder is the important thing about football is that it's not just about football yeah uh, unfortunately i think that's what he fails at where by the end you're so unclear about what the stakes of the football match and the reform of football means is that it just just become a football match like it is just like yeah we're happy you you won because we like trev and rincewind and Macarana and Riccoli and the rest of them and we don't like Andy and, and his mates you know rather than it representing something more than just a game and I, I just thought like oh actually like maybe it is possible to do those standalone books and also have really nuanced characters but I don't know this kind of ends up sort of falling apart at the seams by trying to do so much mm. uh, so soul music is something like where like Buddy, Glaude and Cliff are fun characters and um, we get the introduction of Susan as as a a recurring character, um, but Buddy God and Cliff aren't hugely memorable, but they, I don't know, presumably allow that team to be played with a little more. Yeah, Again, like one of this one some is because he doesn't do as much as he could with it. But if I was to look at where I'm thinking I'd place it, is probably between equal rights and sorcery right now okay. because like um, again see Soul Music and The Last Continent are two that we've talked about before because they're kind of them- thematically similar well not thematically but you know in the sense that um, they they don't really aspire to do an awful lot but they kind of keep the ball rolling ironically compared to this one and like you know it, it all has like it has good narrative structure so like I mean Soul Music a little bit towards the end but I, I like it anyway so like um, 
And equal rights, I don't think I could... Because even though equal rights has its problems, it was still, like, great at the time for, like, uh, just, like, exploring, like, gender roles within the fantasy genre and that sort of thing. Sorcery, yeah. though, I don't think I could put it uh, below sorcery, though, because that, that's kind of a very... One of the weakest ones here, so... And this and like for all its problems, at least unseen academicals is actually like saying something. So whereas like sorcery isn't really. Yeah, it sort of shares the problem with soul music and perhaps not making as much like significant, interesting things to say about mm. its like central. Uh, I know you wouldn't call it a team, but its central hook, conceit. Like, yeah, yeah, conceit. Yeah, that's a, a good word for it, of like rock music on one hand and football on the other. But soul music, I think, tells probably a slightly more satisfying story within the, the confines of mm. uh, of that. Last Continent again, you know, yeah, I think it's more sort of satisfying what it does. And I've always felt a little bad with equal rights. Like uh, I think. It, it, it's probably it's probably the worst example in some ways of the, the early complaint of the really sudden endings you get in some of those early pressure books where it feels like he had like this incredibly tight word count <laughs> and they weren't going to give him like any more time to, to draw them out like, like it yeah. really um has, has a like a very kind of abrupt finish but it, you're right in that it is hugely important in that like while Colour of Magic and Life Fantastic, as I was just saying, I think you're sort of underrated in the ideas that they explore. Absolutely. They are essentially romps and subversions, uh, sendings up of fantasy conventions. And Equal Rights is the first one that he tries to tackle something bigger, more societal in, in, in gender conventions. And while, yeah, maybe he does that to much greater effect in later books, still got to give a little po- a lot of points for him doing that that early on. Whereas mm. Sorcery is a backward step in that he's just going back to the to kind of romp territory and in fact I would argue to lesser effect in a lot of ways certainly yeah. on Life Fantastic and oh, actually it's above colour magic but I think you could you, you could probably easily swap them around yeah. without much argument so new number 34 below equal rights above sorcery unseen academicals kind of you know tries to do a lot doesn't succeed at a, at a whole lot of that but at least we're left with some you know interesting ideas and mm. fun character moments from it yeah so yeah, uh, then the next one coming up is I Shall Wear Midnight, which, as I said, is, is one that's really highly thought of, so kind of looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Also a lot shorter, which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's very true. I've been true. so busy here trying to finish the Unseen Academicals while working and like studying and everything as well. It's And the fact that it's not one of the best Discworld books either made it a bit difficult, all right. Yeah, a bit, yeah. Of, a bit of a slog at times, uh, <laughs> trying to balance it with everything else. Yeah, um, so I'm looking, looking forward to that anyway. Yeah, that'll be good. So I guess on that note, we should call it a day. Hey. Final whistle. Yeah, that's it. They think it's all over. Now it's over. <laughs> it is now. Yeah. It's over, it is now. <laughs> oh.